white privilege podcast i am your co-host very white guy and i'm joined as always by unruly rev you can find us on the twitters uh, i'm at very white guy and the rev is at unruly rev uh, the podcast can be found at interracial john that's j-a-w-n it's a Philly thing. Uh, you can listen to the other podcast to find out. But Interracial John, uh, we're on iTunes, Stitcher. You can also search IRJ White Privilege Podcast. The hashtag uh, we're attempting to use is hashtag White Privilege Podcast. But uh, here we are. Rev, how you doing? Hey, I'm all right. I'm all right. It's been, well, let me turn you. <laughs> I got to fix your speakers. I had you turned down a little bit. Sorry. Okay. It, it's right. been uh, way too long. I know we. It's we've, been way too long. And not just for the podcast, but for you and I. And we, we, we just spoke for like a half an hour before we started recording the podcast. And I still, uh, we need to catch up more. And, and I, I make a commitment to, to being better in that regard. I apologize. I, I know it's a life gets in the way, but I, I, I certainly yeah, should have been reaching out more. It does. Life does. And fall and things, uh, you know, school was starting and kids' school was starting for me. And, you know, living between a couple of different cities and doing a lot of traveling. So, but here we are. We got this. We got this. Fall's really starting to maybe starting to kick in. So hopefully, I'll I'll slow down a little bit and settle in and be ready for fall. And that'll also mean being able to to connect and do do podcasts more regularly. We got a couple of great books we want to talk about over yeah. the next little bit. And that's that right there is like. Listen, uh, I don't know, impulse and, and reason to do it. I, I'm just going to jump the gun. I cannot wait to start talking to you about Mothers of Massive Resistance. I, 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 You had told me about it and recommended it, and then we talked about it and decided to make it a community read on the podcast. And I was like, yeah, yeah this sounds great. This is good. And then I got the book, and I kind of read a little bit. I was like, yeah, okay. Finally sat down and read the introduction in the first few chapters. I was like, oh, my God, I can totally see why Rev was like <laughs> so – I was like, I have to try it, but oh, my yeah. gosh. Oh it's yeah, the parallels with today, and it's almost just like it's shameful reading the things that that went that are happening in 1920 that are just direct correlations and parallels to today. You know, yeah. in, the rhetoric's the same, the language is the same, the behaviors yeah. are very very similar. But anyway, we'll we'll get into that a little bit okay. later. But man, I'm geeked. I, 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 <laughs> uh, and when it's, I think, and maybe this is why I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Elizabeth Gillespie McRae, the the author, uh, is a a historian and as a as an educator, a professor of history, I think here in North Carolina. Um, but I love maybe that's part of like being a white guy or something. But just anything that's couched in uh, empiricism and sort of research and got documentation, uh, I really gravitate towards. Uh, you know, and this is almost like a scientific read. You know, like the 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 notations and the reference section has got to be like 50 pages like oh yeah Elizabeth did a lot of work on this I mean yeah oh absolutely this is definitely something that you that is a like a you know I wouldn't hesitate in my in the academic side that I do this this would this would definitely good be good source material Mm. that would be you know that's a legitimate academic read and yet it is so accessible yeah 
it's not it's not overly it, you know it's not using jargon it's not using insider language to try to keep people out to show how how academic it is which is such a white thing to do right and that's what academic academia comes from is you know this culture of insider outsider better worse and all you know it academia just comes steeped in white supremacy culture this book uh while being you know legit academic for all those reasons you just mentioned i'm even looking i'm looking at it right now it's got to be it's at least you know it's got to be at least 50 60 pages of 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 end notes yeah i'm looking at it right chapter one has 73 references just chapter one And, And, and yet even with all that it's really really easy to get into and just and just kind of absorb get understand follow it's just accessible it's accessible you don't have to be you know a phd to follow this and get it and at least for me to get my blood pressure up to get more and more angry to get more and more like sometimes i talk to the tv when i get mad i'm talking to the book like it makes me talk to the book and like yell at the book. I'm getting mad. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely uh, you're right about the accessibility and the the book is at least what I've read so far in the introduction. It, it's laid out in a chronological and sort of logical way. So chapter one's you know nineteen nineteen twenty and it's specifically talks about Virginia and and we're actually getting into too much, but it it's very accessible and we'll talk more about it at the in about like thirty minutes in the podcast. But yeah. I'm just uh, thrilled that we're doing it and excited to be reading it. Uh, so, uh, checking in, um, it's been, uh, since August and I, like I said, we apologize, uh, 18 or so listeners uh, that it's been a couple of months. Um, that's on us. Uh, you know, we, we, we try to do more and we've tried to be more consistent. Um, so we're going to keep that, uh, keep lifting keep that up. Being imperfect <laughs> and keep pushing through our imperfection and not freak out about our imperfection. That's another way to, for us to fight our own white supremacist. Uh, you know, tendencies is to want to be perfect and then we're not, mm-hmm. and then we apologize too much and then freak out. And it, but we're not quitting. We're not yeah. going to quit just because we're not perfect. Well said. Uh, yeah. Well, do you want to, anything you want to check in on? I know it's been a while and you said we're being perfect. You want to jump right into it? Yeah, let's jump in. All right. So we both want to get to this book. I know, like, I know. Speaking of imperfection, uh, so I, I kind of made a boo boo and I, you know, and I, I thought about it and I said, okay, I'll put it on the podcast because I, I always, uh, talk about myself and my my journey, um, but so uh, we're volunteering with uh, North Carolina Trans Pride. Uh, they're having an event here in uh, Charlotte at UNC uh, Charlotte downtown tomorrow, and uh, we're volunteering. And so I, I had filled out a form, and there was some uh, communication that was going to be coming, and I got kind of like antsy, and I didn't want to miss it. And it's going to be early in the morning, so I was like, I kind of was like, and it was like. I don't know, maybe like three or something in the afternoon. So I, I texted the, the contact I had. And I was like, oh, I hadn't seen the email. Sorry to bother you, this and that. And I really was like, oh, I can't, I'm doing that thing. Like I'm, I'm yeah. doing that. I'm that guy. Like I can't believe I did it. And then the, the email <laughs> came and then there was actually a, a problem with some of the scheduling. So it was a big issue, but I really wrote back. I was like, oh my God, I'm that guy. Like I just did that guy. Like I did that that thing where like I'm like oh my god I'm 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 a volunteer and I you know tell me what to do and where to be and this and that and like I I, I hope I wasn't you know and I they I apologize and the, the individual was like no problem I understand you have a great weekend but I really was like man I, I just did that thing like I'm that guy <laughs> I can't believe I friggin' like was that dude like I know that guy I hate that guy why why do I be that guy you know and and inherent in that sort of like oh I didn't get anything there's this sort of like subtle 
you know, do you have your acts together and you know, paternalistic, right. like, well, how come I was supposed to get an email at this time and I didn't get an email? And well, this is supposed to be a, a parade. And do you have the permits? And, you know, all those things that, that, you know, we white people do. I, I did as a, a cisgendered individual. And I do want to lift up, uh, the event. It's, uh, and their Twitter handle is NC Trans Pride. And there's a Facebook event. Uh, we'll put it in the notes. Um, obviously I don't know if the podcast will be listened to before because it's, it's literally tomorrow morning. Um, but we're excited to be able to, to help and, and be there and, and volunteer. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit more broadly about. Wait, before, wait hold on. Before we get into the yeah. next piece. No, no. I wasn't done with Trans Pride. Yeah. I just want to make a suggestion. No, before we even get into the next piece on the, on the docket here Please. around, around that, uh, if you're so inclined, as somebody who's, who used to run a couple of, and still does run one volunteer organization, I hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten so oh, many emails and calls from that guy or that, uh, that person. Uh, and so, you know, apology is good. You should send him like a basket of something and, and like, like. It was just one text though. It was just one SMS. I, I wasn't like that guy on like 11. I was like that guy like on two, but it was bad. I did do that. And I apologize to you for all the, all the that guys that have, all the that guy Drews you had to encounter. Like take somebody, take a couple extra cups of coffee when you go tomorrow morning to give them to some of the organizers and just like, you know, something. Here's some extra caffeine. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bring some donuts. That's a good on idea. On behalf of all of us that suck when we interact with nonprofits and even let, this probably isn't even a nonprofit, right? It's probably like a gather, like a collective of people that's yeah. trying to put this thing on, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's uh, a billion things going on and very white guy Drew was not. <laughs> not on the list and not needed and certainly took time out of somebody's day. So don't, don't be me. Learn from me. Is it? Oh my goodness. Sorry, They're calling that. you. They're calling you. <laughs> hey, we feel you thinking about us. Please uh, don't send that email. Well, so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about more broadly the tools of oppression uh, and just sort of how they're similar. So I've, I've just talked about how I was that guy in this as a cisgendered individual trying to, to be supportive of, uh, trans individuals. And my lens for race based oppression is, is much better. Um, we tend to focus on this podcast on race a lot. Um, I'm married to a black woman that is a, as an activist and, and, uh, does work with various uh, black liberation movements. So it kind of maybe makes sense or is logical that we talk about race a lot, but the, the tools of oppression are so similar. You know, and so we're talking about me as a cisgender person and how I oppress trans individuals. And so understanding race based oppression, it ought to sort of translate to me having a better lens and understanding of, of other privileges that I have and how, you know, oppressions work. And it doesn't always work that way. You know, it doesn't quite kind of like carry over. Um, but they are very, very similar. And, uh, I don't know. I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about just various oppressions and, and cause we don't talk. I know we talked on the last episode about getting into other topics like fat antagonism. And, you know, certainly we're talking about trans and LGBT issues. Um, yeah. you know, what are your thoughts about the tools of oppression being, you know, I want to say so similar, obviously the, the outcome results and things that the, the, the minutia are different, but, in a broad spectrum, you're othering an individual. You're 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 making them less uh, valuable. There's sort of similarities. Uh, where, am I? I know oh, I've heard this from the I'm folks. Not, I think you're I think you're on on 
track with some of that, right? Because also the, the tools of oppression keep, they keep a hierarchy, right? They keep a, a, a they keep a, a group powerful and other groups less powerful. There are groups of, of traditionally marginalized folks. Uh, and then also remembering how there's intersections, right? There's intersectionality around that too, that, that, you know, none of us are one thing. We have a lot of different aspects to ourselves. And when you're looking at then for when folks have, uh, when you're looking at, at these different aspects and seeing where different parts of our identity connect, uh, there's uh, those that have, you know, traditional power or, uh, or privilege uh, can be the oppressors depending on how on how that's being used uh, power and resources and all that and then and then other aspects of identity that are going to be that are marginalized or are uh, oppressed and and when you look at for those where there's a lot of intersections how those connect for a lot of people they wind up intersecting the identities having a good number of marginalized identities within that. And that, that intersectionality of marginalized identities then uh, really can exacerbate uh, the experience. And so those tools of oppression can, I think, uh, they, they one thing they all do, and I would say regardless of how the, tool, the, the goal of the tool is to keep some people up and keep some people down and keep some identities up and keep some identities down, and how they, like you said, how those fit. There's a lot of ways they get used by whom, you know, who's using them, for what purpose. Mm. Uh, That's interesting. You talked about marginalized identities and the intersection, and I came at it from almost the other side. I have all the privileges. I have multiple identities, but they're all very privileged. You know, there aren't. Well, and some of them are temporary, though. That's one of the things. And I, I didn't. I wasn't quite ready for this conversation, or I would have bought. I would have brought another. Uh, book chapter for this because there's a there's a book chapter I like the way this and I'm forgetting her name right now uh this author it's actually a um she's a therapist and so she's looking at at the way that at different aspects of identities doing therapy that remembering that everybody's not one thing and remembering that 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 uh traditionally therapy and and just academia in general right and certainly medicine looks at one identity like woman and goes right from there or black and goes right from there man and that that doesn't encompass anyone's reality so when you're doing therapy you need to break it out and i think she's got maybe nine different kind of bigger categories that you have to be keeping all these things in play all the time and one of the things that she mentions is for some certain parts of identities are temporary Hmm. right being young is part of and where your age is there's 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 uh privilege and then there's uh, potentially more marginalized having to do with age. Uh, children are, uh, have, uh, you know, are, have less power. And then you grow out of that. If you, you know, grow up, you know, kids grow out of that to a degree. Now there's other intersections that could hit that wind up. Maybe they don't, but, uh, that's one, uh, it, uh, being able-bodied or having different abilities that can change just due to, you know, you can get a car accident and all of a sudden, the able, the able, ableist type privileges that you and I hold right now could be gone. Good point. Based on circumstance, and it could be temporarily gone, or it could be permanently gone. So there are certain uh, privileged identities that that have pot- potentially are are temporary, and some of them are going to be the way they are. Right, our race isn't going to change. Yeah, 
That's interesting. Uh, so it, I brought it up because I, I started looking at, so I was going to mention uh, North Carolina Trans Pride and said, okay, let's get some resources, talk about, you know, and I literally did the very, you know, I said, okay, what would a person do? You know, let's go to Google. I said, okay, how could a cisgendered person be a better ally to transgendered individuals? And I got, you know, a bunch of resources and I put two here and I, I put a little asterisk next to them. Um, the one I actually thought had some good information and I, I don't, I don't know if we need to read through it, uh, but trans equality had a resources um, supporting the transgender people in your life, a guide to being a good ally. And it had, um, it did the thing that I don't think a lot of ally resources do where it kind of, it, it gave some broader stuff. Like, and here's kind of how you can listen and support and pronouns. And then it gave some really like specific contextual stuff that, um, again, I don't know if it's, I don't want to trigger individuals, but like, you know, almost like a do's and don'ts list, right? Like, you know, don't, don't ask about, uh, you know, things relating to their sexuality. Don't conflate it with the gender. Don't ask mm-hmm. things about, uh, you know, if they're, having or deciding about hormones or, or surgical yeah. procedures, you know, don't talk about those things. And on some level, it's like, God, I can't believe that you almost have to like, geez, it's, it's a shame. There has to be this level of do and don't. But I, I mean, I, I how many people you got to tell don't touch black people's hair, you know? Uh, so I think this is, I, I found this one, I thought pretty good that it had some broad and some uh, more sort of like granular strokes, but I pulled up and I always do this when I search Google, I just go to like the first, eight results and I open them all up on separate tabs. So I've got, you know, my Google up with eight tabs open, each one a different ally kind of uh, checklist that, that has been produced. And I, I found I, I it it dawned on me on like the fifth or sixth one that I went to, uh, and in particular the, the one from Glad. And I'm not trying to say anything good or bad about Glad. It was very white centric. Mm-hmm. That the, the images, the pictures, the voices, the, the people, there was multiple pieces. There was two I found that were like, we asked, you know, eight trans activists how to be a better ally. We asked, you know, six prominent trans people how to be a better ally. And it was, it was very, very white centric. And there might have been, um, some non-black people of color, but certainly I didn't see anybody black. And I remember, I think we talked on this podcast specifically about that I had the same encounter when I was looking for, information on fat antagonism. And I realized that I had sort of surrounded myself with mostly white voices on this topic and that I was missing a very distinct layer uh, when it came to, to race. This is that racial lens wasn't there. And that whenever that's missing, in my opinion, it, it's kind of like almost crap. You're just missing a whole lot. Uh, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not really uh, effective. And it sort of was like, wow, I can't believe I've clicked seven or eight resources and they all kind of didn't have anything about race. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, uh, you know, I know that, that trans individuals, uh, trans women of color in particular, are, are among the most uh, at risk. Uh, the, um, you know, the the rates of, of homicide for, for black trans women is just astronomical. I, I can't remember the, the average lifespan, but it it wasn't, you know, the 71 years that, that white men and women or whatever have. But so... Yeah, like, like 35 or 38. Yeah, so, I mean, really like astonishingly yeah. low a, a number so far off from the median so many standard deviations are the median that you can't help but look at that and say this is a, a serious problem this is a serious oh, yeah. problem but so uh two resources uh and one uh just came out and I'll, i always <laughs> i went to google and then i literally said hey leslie <laughs> well, we have a friend that's doing this right now as a matter of fact right now <laughs> 
who? Jay. Yeah, that's the that's who Leslie said yeah. literally. So I said, hey Leslie, I know that I'm missing the the you know what this is this is a little too white centric. Help me out. Uh, so the two uh, individuals that that Leslie had uh, and again uh, came from, but Jay Marie Hill, uh, Music Freedom Dreams. Uh, Jay Marie is the founder, lead uh, dreamer, Jay Marie Hill, and they've got uh, a wonderful project uh, talking about music, freedom, dreams. Uh, but they've got uh, a project they're working on. And do you know more about it? The well, I mean, I, yeah, I guess you know you haven't been following my Twitter line very well then, because I've been tweeting about this for ten days. I haven't been on Twitter for nothing. I apologize. <laughs> I'm busting on you. So, well, uh, uh, Jay Marie is working, uh, d- does work uh, on their own. Uh, their their individual work is with uh, Music Freedom Dreams, which you can find musicfreedomdreams.com. Uh, and they do some really fabulous, uh, actually workshops for, uh, for white people and people working to, uh, even as, as a, they do, uh, yeah, workshops for white people working to connect and do better work, uh, in communities. Uh, and so that's some of the stuff, uh, that Jay's been doing, but it's not the only thing that they do. Also an unbelievable musician, like yeah. unbelievable musician. The Holy ghost. Uh, and also has been working for um, uh, ACLU Missouri, uh, kind of leading the uh, leading the the work that they're doing with the trans community uh, in Missouri. And so, as a result of connecting with those two those two pieces, uh, has come up with this trans ally toolkit that's that it's uh you know connected through jay marie and the aclu of missouri and it's fabulous you can download it it's online it's a really incredible uh great resource uh with some active things that you can do yeah so this is uh and again that was as i i I googled and i didn't i guess this is recent the trans ally uh resource kit is within the last couple weeks maybe within the last yeah less than two weeks i think less than two weeks kicked off so google hasn't indexed it uh quite uh appropriately yet. so i didn't i didn't find it but as soon as uh leslie said oh it's the aclu i said well but it's good no no but jay marie worked i said okay perfect there you go all right now i can i can feel confident but uh yeah we'll put that on the um the podcast guide um like i said the the trans toolkit fantastic it's gonna definitely have a, a racial lens which um again I, I started by saying we we tend to focus on race a lot on this podcast but the tools are similar but then also race i think i'm i don't know maybe someone else can say this better but it it intersects everything so if if you're talking about environmental justice if you're talking about reproductive justice if you're talking about uh bond work if you're talking about uh right to vote if you're talking about education if you're talking about access to healthcare if you're talking about any of these things and you're not thinking about and talking about race in that context, you're just, you're missing so, so much. You're, you're ablating and cutting out an entire section of, of individuals. And, you know, I think I always, whenever I see something that does this, it's clear to me. It's like, Oh, you've just eliminated black people from this, from this entire, like, you know, thing. When someone says like, I'm trying to give an example, but Oh, I don't know. But, uh, I guess people talk about the difference between Latinx and, and black folks. And someone will make a comment about Latinx forgetting that there are Afro Latinx individuals from, from mm. that place as well. But so if you're not talking about race, I think you're, you're missing a lot. So I was glad that, uh, Jay Marie has, uh, worked with the ACLU and they've got this toolkit and it's available uh, to download. Fantastic, uh, resource and, uh, appropriate for, uh, someone like me to not be that guy when volunteering at Trans Pride North Carolina. 
Well, and let me say too, like, so this toolkit, uh, th- this is, it's not a whole, it's not a giant book. So it's, you can get through it really quick. You got some really uh, concrete things to do. Uh, and so that just right there, it, it makes it really, again, really accessible, easy. It's not going to break your brain. It's not going to make, give you a 365 day commitment. Like these are places that you can jump in and every little thing that we can do to start pulling apart these, you know, the way oppression has been working, the way power has been working, share resources, open up um, avenues of, of power to people who have been, uh, you know, oppressed, who people have been le- give, you know, made powerless or given less power. This is going to give you some really great, like 10 days worth of tools. Yeah, it's uh, just, I'm looking at it now, it's 24 pages. They've got, uh, and this is good for the ACLU, they had three different ways to download it. There's a uh, online PDF with additional resources. There's a quick zine that's like a browser base. There's a print at home manual. So if you want to like read it at home, uh, but lots of great information. Uh, and as we said, the, the tools are very similar, um, othering individuals. Uh, so if you want to work on your, uh, being a better ally, I hate that word. I'm going to put my air quotes, uh, more uh, supporting trans individuals, uh, in your life better. And, and I say in your life because they are in your life. Right. That was one of the, of the various resources I looked at. Um, almost all of them started with, um, you know, trans people are, are everywhere and they're in your life and you probably don't know it. Um, you know, yep. kind of thing. So, uh, definitely look at that. Um, and please, uh, consider, uh, downloading the toolkit supporting Jay Marie. Uh, go to their, uh, their website as well, which is music freedom dreams and, uh, consider supporting them because this is a terrific guide. Uh, yeah. So, and we'll make sure to put Jay Marie's uh, website up in the, in the, uh, yeah, I've got it in the notes as well. well. Definitely. Yeah. Cause so, check, check out Jay Marie for all the stuff that they do. Uh, it doesn't matter what you are going to hit gold every time you connect with Jay Marie every single time. I would agree. Definitely agree. So, uh, we talked in the last podcast and it's interesting. I, I looked, I had to check the dates. We published it on the 12th, but I think we recorded somewhere on like the 7th or 8th. And we talked about on the podcast an ongoing conversation that Dr. Uh, Chris Fleming was having at the time. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Crystal Marie Fleming, always the self on Twitter. Um, so they were having a conversation about um, allyship and just sort of like who has the power. And so like almost this notion of an individual that's, I hate using the Tim Wise as the example, but you know, pulling a Tim Wise where you, you become an expert on, uh, racism and then you make your money on being an ally, uh, fighting racism. That's kind of like a weird, uh, it almost seems like a dichotomy that shouldn't exist. Like, how are you going to make your bank purporting to want to eliminate white supremacy, but you're making all this money writing books about white supremacy that gets sold to white people. Something about that doesn't add up, right? So uh, Dr. Fleming was having this sort of conversation and that I think framed a little bit of our last episode, right? Am I wrong about that? If it wasn't, if it wasn't the last episode, yeah, yeah, we did talk about, we did talk about the performative. Yeah, I think we did talk about some of those pieces. It's a little bit of a blur as to which episode because that (laughs) comes up, this comes up not it's not an uncommon topic for uh, that's my fault that's that's, that's that's my damage but so i i i kept having that kind of ongoing discussion and so i 
I had a few more tweets with Dr. Fleming and uh, an individual, James Field, uh, who's also a, a UU minister and is at UU James. Um, so, and I, I shout out to you, James. Uh, I, I've had a couple of different engagements with James on, on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. and he consistently pushes me in a way, um, that I probably wouldn't receive from, from other people. I hate to say it like that, but like another white dude's got to sometimes kind of like, crack the white dude upside the head, you know, and James is really good at that for me. Uh, so thank you, James. But so, uh, James wrote, I think the failure to have a true, and he put quotes on community of accountability renders most air quotes, allyship performative. Cause we were talking about, you know, what, when and how right. is allyship performative? When do you cross that line? Right. And, and Dr. Fleming was having this discussion. So then Dr. Fleming's retort and sort of follow up was, and I, I mentioned, so again, this is, I'll use these I statements. I'm in this dialogue and at the same time, I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm feeling a little bit like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of this, you know, very white guy. The Twitter handle is a, is a quote unquote ally for, you know, black liberation. And what's my accountability? What am I doing? What's my this? What's my that? And I, I, I demurred, I equivocated by saying, well, I don't, that's not my job. I don't get paid. You know, this ain't my bank. And I, I've used that as a convenient excuse in the past. And I love Dr. Fleming for, for pushing back on that. So, so she wrote, profit doesn't have to be material. It can also be social. I think people who are really visible as dominant group member social justice advocates, either on the ground in communities or in the public sphere, could fall under the headline or heading of professional allies. And so I, I'm thinking like, okay, that now I'm definitely, <laughs> that's definitely me. Uh, so I, I kind of had a couple more back and forth. And then Dr. Fleming wrote, I'd, in her, uh, thread, I'd want answers to these questions. For example, what do you do regularly to invite process and respond to racial criticism about your conduct from non-whites? What transparent accounting are you already doing, willing to do in public and private to respond to racial critique? And then again, follow up from Dr. Fleming. I joked the other day about annual accountability reports, but that's something I've never seen a professional ally, that's in quotes, do mm-hmm. solicit input from a broader public for which they claim to be an ally and publish process on an ongoing basis, critique and suggestions from those minorities. So we had, and I, I, I said, I had to look it up. I think this dialogue happened on Twitter, August 11th, and I posted our show the 12th. So this, I really think we recorded like the 8th or 9th and took me a couple yeah. days to get it up. Um, so here's my question for you. I want to actually like, back of an envelope, start thinking this out loud and maybe something comes of it. What would Dr. Fleming's annual accountability report look like? Well, I think what we need to do, I I would actually narrow that question a little bit more. Okay. I would narrow that question. What would Dr. Fleming's annual accountability report look like for us and this show? And that's, um, thank you. And I I meant to, that was what I was thinking. I always, always work in I statements. I don't, pretend to think, you know, all I can ever do is my journey and hopefully share that and it resonates with somebody else. But you, thank you. What would Dr. Fleming's report look for us? For you because it's, it can be really easy to, it could, and this is whiteness at work, right? It could be really easy for us to go, okay, well, what would this look like? Let's put this together. Let's get something. And you can think real general mm. to make it big, right? And then we can get into detail about what that could look like in general and make sure that we're getting all these pieces so that it could be used here and here and here. And then there's perfectionism in that, right? And so then it takes a while because we don't want to, and then we're going to release it for the broader public. And and that's part of this, I think, dynamic a little bit too, right? Mm. Around we're going to make it, we're going to make it a product rather than if, if, 
if I get specific about it and say, what, what's going to look like for us, then it doesn't matter if it looks the same for anybody else or if anybody else sure. gives a damn about it or if anybody else even thinks they want to do it. But, but what could we do? Um, how, how could we make that work for us? And then by just saying it here, um, you, you and I have to do this. Yeah. And I think the broader is actually, Dr. Fleming did the broader, right? I mean, yeah, she what, did the broader. She yeah. already said that you'd have to solicit and be open to critique in public right. and private. And, you know, maybe there's some kind of like, you know, her, her joke was that there's like a, a report, like, and Leslie even joked about like, there needs to be a white ally, like certification body. <laughs> You're completely fuck ass and horrible. You're not as horrible. And <laughs> that's, that's the or, two, the two options. Well, and the, the piece around this is, um, while, while, yeah, she put, she put a few pictures there or a few pointers in there, but if we were going to do what taking those pieces into account, and that might not even be all of it for us, that we'd want to solicit input from the broader public that we claim to be an ally to, uh, we publish it. Uh, those are pieces of it, but how would, how would we do that? What would it look like for us? Because in the way that we're working, and it could be something around just this podcast, us and us personally, you know, might look a little bit different because you and I, this, this podcast is one thing that we do. That's definitely yep. public that I would say then does make us professional allies, even though we're not getting paid for it. Um, but personally, you know, I work in certain areas around my job and I work in other areas within the faith and I work. And so, and you do too. So that accountability report might, for me, might, there might be a couple of them that I would have to look at putting together every year. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I've also, uh, we've danced around this on this podcast sort of like, I want it to be, yeah, what are we doing? Is it performative? Are people just feeling good? Are we actually making a difference? Is there any sort of actionable steps that people can take? And I think that, you know, the podcast is one piece, but I think really what I was hinting at and driving at was this sort of, how do we have an accountability, uh, framework, you know? And, and I would say that, that you and I have loosely done this in some ways that, that we, we've had, uh, we have a white, uh, accountability sort of circle. You and I have you know, talked on other mediums with other people and groups about some of this stuff. We've had phone conversations about some of this stuff. Um, Leslie meet on my life personally, um, is certainly a, a, a level of accountability. I, I can't be out here embarrassing and making her look stupid and, and making it hard for her to do her work. And she can't have me, uh, you know, like she said on Twitter, like if I show my ass and put my foot in my mouth, she ain't going to defend me. <laughs> that's on me. Like that's just, you know, like I got to do what I got to do. But so I think I've wanted this and I've felt sort of like, you know, a need for this, but I don't know how to get to it and what it entails. And every time I kind of think about it in, in actual practical terms, it feels like I would need to ask a person of color or a black person to kind of like audit our behaviors and things. And that's like, okay, then that's work. And how do you compensate that? And Jesus, how do you invite somebody to ask that? I don't know. I, but this is something I, I want to hammer out with you. And it doesn't have to be, like you said, a product today, but right. um, I like that you've narrowed it to us. Maybe let's narrow it even more to this podcast. How yeah, can this podcast... This, if we're going to talk about this in this format, yeah. then I think we need to be clear uh, about... So what would Dr. Fleming's annual accountability report look like for the White Privilege Podcast? And okay. that'll be the working title of what we're going to be working on. How about that? Yeah. And I, I think I'm just going to actually put this in the podcast notes. I'm not actually Absolutely. take notes right now. So Absolutely. I think it would look like uh, minimally a, a list of episodes and topics, right? 
I'm okay. just saying, what would be in the, uh, this is like, I'm going real basic. Well, what would you, if somebody said, well, how, how did the white privilege podcast do last year? What do you, how do you tell them okay, what we yeah. did? Oh, gotcha. Okay. Right. Well, and it's, I'm thinking from my old days and as, as an executive director at a nonprofit, like what was in our annual report? Okay. And that's kind of what this is like. It's kind of like you do your annual report for at the end of the year. What'd you Maybe do? I, you know, I, I'm, on the team? I'm going to interrupt you, but I was going to try typing and I don't know if you can type the notes, but I, I, I've been using a Microsoft circa like 1998 keyboard and I refuse to get rid of it because I love it, but it's so loud. It's like click, clack, click, clack. So I'm not actually going to take notes because it'll be okay. deafening. But. Well, guess what? Here's the cool thing. You're, you're recording this. We can listen to it. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> All right. So one of the other things that we could do, I think there's, you know, solicit input from the broad public. And for us, the public that would make the obvious first public is, who are our listeners? If listeners are interested, if there, if we have any listeners interested in in giving us feedback uh, around that, and and take steps from there around, uh, you know, seeing what kind of compensation we can can connect as a uh, as a good trans, you know, for part of this is actional, right? So, um, depending on the who we get feedback from, uh, does it make sense to? to compensate them for their time and their energy and their support and their help uh, with us around that. If we've got some, uh, you know, if we've got some uh, black people who are giving us feedback, if we've got any native American people who give us Latinx people who are giving us feedback, if we've got other, uh, you know, now, now that we're looking at these other pieces too, any trans gender nonconforming people giving us feedback, that's a piece of it. That's potential. Yeah, I think there's feedback from white folk, but in my interpretation of Dr. Fleming's commentary, the accountability's got to be to to the the group that we claim to be in allyship for, right. um, and maybe that's for this podcast. It tends to focus on Black liberation. Well, and so, but I would say that feedback from our white listeners too can be useful for this report. In that we could find out that as a result of this podcast, how. Are we reaching some of the goals where we're hoping to give tools? And yes, hey, I use this tool and it, and it's it's enabled me to do X Y Z. So we could be getting gathering data, not no um, from our white listeners, you know, potentially to see if some of the goals that we have, if we're reaching them or not. Yeah, and that would be sort of a, I'm thinking more like the business side of me is like, okay, right. if this were actually, you know, if your business were the White Privilege Podcast and trying to make a difference in Black liberation, you'd want some ROI, some return on investment. You know, what have you done? What actions have white people done to to reduce what from stemming from the White Privilege Podcast? What actions and behaviors have white listeners done to dismantle systems of supremacy in in their circle of influence their lives there there's you know where they where they're at right in their specific area How which would think? include then we need to have our some of our piece around that for that report too right what do we actually do what are we actually doing be, you know yeah and and it's interesting I, I remember thinking about the podcast and whether it's performative like what action steps are there and here we're getting to this accountability report and it's like Geez, well, you gotta have had some action to be able to have something at the end. If the report is we recorded 14 episodes and these are the topics, meh, you know? Right, right. And yeah, so there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be, well, to, to dig into around this and think about it. Uh, certainly for the, you know, seven and a half listeners that we have out there that are, <laughs> that are working on things. Uh, if you're willing to, to, 
hit us up either with DMs and Twitter or on that hashtag white privilege podcast and see uh, if you've got ideas. Uh, I know that I, I actually got I got some feedback um, from a colleague, uh, uh, a black colleague that uh, that I know who, who did listen to the show and said, hey, I, I had some ideas about your about your next episodes and some ideas about podcasts and stuff. And so I, you know, I wrote them down and it wasn't so much a critique on what we were doing, but it was, it was just podcast stuff of, of, Hey, have you thought about this, this, and this, so we can take a look at more of that. And I was like, this is great. And you know, yeah, took her to, took her to a nice dinner and nice. thanks her for that. Yeah. Like that's awesome. That's great. I love when, when, uh, I, I, I feel like the, because we're white, we speak to a white audience. So I'm always, uh, honored uh, when, when non-white individuals uh, take the time to listen to the show and then further to, to provide any sort of commentary feedback. I, I accept oh, yeah. that very graciously. Um, Invaluable. Yeah. Invaluable. So, so, so this is a good, this is a good, these this, are some next steps. We were yeah. looking for some more direction. I think we got some. Well, and I'm, I'm still, I'm back on this sort of like actionable items thing. And I'm, and this is just, you know, I wonder, so like the podcast as a format is, limited in some capacity you know it's got a it's sort of like and people do podcasts differently and let's be realistic you and i are not going to produce a podcast like serial <laughs> we don't have like you know research and budgets and you know people doing things so it's limited to kind of you and i talking and disseminating the information there's other you know like zoom rooms and webinars and you know uh these e-learning language uh, learning management systems and stuff uh you know coursera moodle all these you know things that people do online and i i mean now we're like you know that that seems like evolving and now it's like okay this is a more of an educational thing in terms of the action items and there's people doing a lot of that you know like there was the healing from from um whiteness uh, webinar that, that Sandra did. So there's, you know, people are already doing those things. So I don't know if that's something to recreate. I don't know. My mind's all over the I place. I don't think we have to, we don't have to recreate or we don't have to grow, we don't have to grow this into something bigger. That just makes us more professional, right? Like that's not the goal of this. The goal is, I think, at least from what I'm reading from, from this piece at the moment, let's assess where we are instead of where we want to grow, white dude. <laughs> Where's my bell? <laughs> Let's not try to dominate the world at the moment. Let's just assess yeah, where I, we are. And I guess that's, again, my, that's probably the white guy in the business thing wanting to that's like. The, that's your capitalism, you know, Sean. Uh, not even capitalism, just wanting to have, yeah, I guess it's capitalistic, but wanting to have results, you know, like very yeah. empirical results driven. And that's definitely a, 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 a trap when it comes to, to liberation work. Um, cause, you know, realistically, we're not likely to see, you know, so so much in our lifetime like that but um yeah thank you for that <laughs> yeah i mean i th i think what the the goal of this is let's gauge where we are where we might be someday that's something to think about but we we like considering where we might go doesn't really matter if we don't know where we are you know i guess this <laughs> maybe part of me is is thinking there is a so I'm familiar with Surge, uh, showing up for racial justice. And, uh, I actually think their, their executive director, uh, they have a new co-exec director, Heather Cronk, I think is great. And they're doing some much better things. Some of the things I see from them, um, they've actually listened to some critique. They used to do fundraising where it was like, give money to Surge and we might share it. And now they're doing fundraising with Mehente that was like, no, no, you're giving money to Mehente 
and you're going to give some to Surge. Um, so they've, 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 they've improved a little bit, but so <laughs> in the back of my mind, and I forget which chapter it was, but I followed very closely a, a chapter. I think it might have been somewhere in the south. I can't remember, but they, they ended up educating themselves to the point that they disbanded the chapter. You know, it was like, they almost went through this exercise of like, well, what are we doing? What's our action? What's the ROI? Or are we just a book club that kind of, cause Surge, Surge is a very loose collective. So they've got some yeah. chapters that are literally a book club where they just, yeah. they read Ta-Nehisi Coates and they sit around and talk about it. And there are other ones that are a little bit more action oriented. And one got so kind of like, I hate the word woke, but they got so woke and action oriented that are like, this is worthless. We're disbanding the chapter. And I, I wonder if, <laughs> I fear that the exercise of what, what are we doing ends up with us deciding that the podcast isn't the thing to do. And I love the podcast. I don't want to do that. Well, and that might be white guy again. Here's the thing is we get to decide. Yeah, it's true. Right. Like we get to decide. So, and they, what, you know, this is what, transparency right this is what actually do an introspection that could be painful and maybe we come to go oh well, what is it that we're really doing i don't know what we're doing we've always said from the beginning even if it's just for you and i to stay accountable and to keep moving forward we'd still regardless do that. of when, whether true. anybody listens to it then that's okay too and you know if, if the exercise of, of of the sort of you know call this dr fleming's accountability for the white privilege podcast if that makes this podcast marginally better and it makes you and i uh, more accountable and better in that regard. That's a net positive. I'm, I'm good right. with that. Because let's let's keep in mind too the whole the goal of this report is not to find out that we're doing it perfectly. Oh, that that'll never be the that report right. doesn't exist. Right. Like the goal of this report is not to show how great we're doing by these results that we're getting. The goal of the report is to find out what the hell is happening. Yeah. And with that, from that is where we're is that that's where we can make once we know what we're, where what we're doing. It, do we have a goal? You know, all those pieces. If we put those, those reports in place, those pieces in place with the report, then we we can make a decision. Now we know, oh, well, let's adjust this and change this to be able to do more of what we say we want to do. Yeah. And, you know, and there's probably, there's maybe there's some, I have, you said it's for us to decide, but there is a little bit of like sort of the community and people sort of tell you, you know, they frame your decision. And I, I kind of felt very white guy on Twitter was very performative. And I, I kind of stopped tweeting and just kind of stepped away and was like, this just something about this feels not correct. And, and, uh, I, I've maybe swung the pendulum too far. You know, maybe there was some valuable engagement that I didn't know was valuable for folks and, and perhaps my, desire to not be performative i've taken it you know a little bit too far in the other direction uh, and I, I think this exercise is being framed by my overriding concern and fear that i that i'm being performative that 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 nothing i've done is of any value or interest you know that it's just yeah hogwash that's, that's uh you know that's that's a sign of privilege right there right is to is that we get to choose where we want to engage and how we want to engage mm. in that way. And oh, because my, and, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to like push no, a button. No, 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 no. Right. But that, this like, <sighs> this idea of, oh, and I, and I know you're not doing it in, in a way like, oh, I'm going to take my marbles and go home because that's not what it is. But even to be able to choose, am I going to engage this fight this way is a choice 
that that we get to make, right? Yeah, that's the that's. Uh, and, and the thing is, is that we are never going to be able to get rid of all of it. And just by disappearing off Twitter doesn't mean that you've given it away. It means somebody else is either out there, maybe doing it with uh with you know to great effect, to not great effect, being performative or not being performative, or it means there's more trolls out there being assholes and you know jumping into spaces with nobody checking on them and I don't know the I don't know that the answer is to any of that but um we're always going to be performative like we're human beings acting in the world like and other people see us and you know if you're going to engage to some degree it could everything could be interpreted as performative you know maybe there's a two things that come thank you for your your point about you know as a white presenting anti-racist individual my single greatest privilege is the ability to decide when and how and if i want to fight racism today right i can literally i can have my black lives matter bracelet on and i can have it off and that's why i wear it every day because i don't want to be in a situation where i decide when and you know it's like you know i want to have it on every day because that's how i do it but so yeah i've, I've definitely you know decided okay i'm gonna uh i'm gonna unplug and I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to relax and just sort of zone out on Netflix and not have to worry about things. And it's, it's been an issue in, in our family and, and marriage. You know, there's things, and I, I remember specifically Sandra Bland, it, yeah. it just, it, it hit Leslie so in a way that I can't ever imagine. Yeah. Leslie's an activist. She's a black woman. She's got, you know, a little bit of attitude when talking with folks and she just could see herself very much in that. And it, it messed her up for, for many days. Whereas, you know, maybe the next day, two days later, I was like a friend of ours was like, Hey, we're going out on the lake and we're going to go on the boat. And, and I was okay with that. And Leslie was not okay with it. And she was not happy that, that I was okay with it. And why didn't it affect me the same way? So it's right. definitely, <clears throat> it's definitely my greatest privilege is to decide when and how. Um, well, and navigating, navigating that within relationships, whether it's your, you know, your spouse or whether it's with friends or whether it's with coworkers, figuring out how how are we going to be together when things don't affect us the same way and it, it, in ways that, how am I trying to say this? How, how do we find ways to navigate being together when there is inequality, when there's, there's uh, you know, a difference in how stuff hits us and the way there's, there's a difference in how we can respond and react to things, how we're going to, how can we navigate that and recognizing those differences and finding grace in that, in the times that that have giving grace and receiving grace is not the same as taking advantage of, or um, letting people off the hook. And I don't know what that dance is, but it's a dance that that I think is worth continuing to engage in. And that's part of what um, what I want to keep and what I keep trying to do. You know, um, is we can't take this whole thing apart right now because mm. it doesn't work that way. So, which means we got to keep dancing with it. Yeah. And you know, your, your comment about perfection and, you know, ways of, so just, I can't remember exactly what you said, but it reminded me of, um, Barner Hess. And he has a, he's a professor of, uh, Oh, I can't remember. I think sociology, but forgive me, Bernard Hess for not getting his degree proper, his, his pedigree properly. But, uh, he wrote this, uh, document and paper about white identities and sort of the eight predominant ways that white people can yeah. be in the world. And it goes from white supremacist, white voyeurist, white privilege, white benefit, white confessional, white critical, white trader, all the way to uh, white abolitionist. 
And I actually engaged with Bernard a couple of times on Twitter about this. And he actually said, like, you know, the thing is that you can, you can occupy multiple of these identities at the same time and you can go back and forth between them. It's not like, you know, although it is a continuum, it's not like you go from one to, to eight and that's it. It's like, it's not a grad, you don't graduate from yeah, one to the next. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, probably I should understand that a little bit better. And I, I think then my comment that I, I swung the pendulum too far, it's like, okay, I felt this was performative. So what I did is I just turned it off when right. reality is like, okay, maybe I should understand that it's going to be performative kind of like, it's going to happen, not intentionally, but it's going to happen because I'm going to go in and out of these various ways of, of white identities. And I would say that the performative stuff tends to be in the sort of white confessional, uh, that's sort of the fifth identity, yeah. where there's some exposure to whiteness, uh, but a way yeah. of being accountable to POC after and you seek validate from anyway, we'll, we'll put it in the Twitter notes, but I, well, let me, let me just mention too, just because so, so you felt that and just because I, I go through, I go through similar stuff, right? And just because, um, we step away from a medium or a place where that's happening or a conversation or relationship, it didn't put our white, we didn't turn off our whiteness and we didn't turn, we didn't turn off what white supremacy is and how it relates in the world, right? We just, we didn't even, we didn't unplug ourselves from it. We may have unplugged ourselves from the uncomfortability of paying attention to it. That's true. And I, and I, and I always, I've got it very, I'm going to say easy, but I think other white folk, I imagine a white individual wanting to be better and, and fight for black liberation that doesn't have a black person they're living with. You know, like I can, I can disengage from a lot of things and still be very, uh, I can still feel very confident that my, like, like if someone attacks me on Twitter, every white guy, you know, you ain't shit, you ain't shit, what are you doing? I, it doesn't really bother me because I support my wife very directly materially. I support numerous black women in and around our life. We, you know, I'm very comfortable with the things I do on a, a sort of like individual granular private basis so that the public stuff, like it just doesn't, I'm not really worried about it. Like I can kind of just So, and you, I saw you raise your hand. I, you and I have never really talked about this. How does that, how do you, how do you, so I was able to disengage and in my mind be okay with it because I was supporting Leslie and safety pin box and doing all these things. What is it? How do you, how does it feel to you? And what do you, you know, are you able to admit that you've disengaged and what is sort of the process well, when that, when that happens for you? I guess well, I was raising my hand cause you said like, you know, you feel like you've got an advantage because you're married to a black woman. And so you've got, you've got instant accountability pieces and you've got, in, you, you've got some things that you have made choices and you, you have in place uh, in terms of support, in terms of consciously looking around how how can you uh be accountable to mm. other people outside and that's one of the things that you know that i i don't have my wife is white our kids are white um i don't have i don't have members of my family that i have uh that kind of constant uh conscious connection with which means that i have to uh, i'm i'm aware of keep trying to keep myself aware on a regular basis so that I don't slip into that place because I don't have to, I don't have somebody at home that's reminding me every day just by waking up in the morning. And so that, um, that's something that's easier. It's definitely easier for me to fall 
to fall into that complacency. And so I, I really work to try to stay on top of that. And, and so what's the feeling though? Cause I, I'm, 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 and if you don't want to talk about it, please, this is, you know, we can edit or talk. Ask me a different way. Ask so me a different when, way. when you, when you, if, if there's a moment where you've decided to be complacent or you, uh-huh. the complacency's happened and right. now you're in that complacent moment and you become aware of the fact that you're complacent, do you feel guilty? Do you feel remorse? Does that spur you to action? How does that, how does that feel and how do you respond and react to it? Well, I think there, I think it's a myriad of ways, depending on what the situation was that made, that brought me back to awareness. So it's, it could very well be anger. It could be embarrassment. It could be shame. It could be, God dang it. It could, you know, it could be any number of, are you kidding me? Did I just make that mistake? Because sometimes what might wake me up is a mistake that I've just made. Uh, so it tends to not be a joyful feeling of, oh, look at how good I did. And I didn't even realize I was doing good. Like that's generally not the feeling. So I think we can X those out, but it's coming from some place of I've probably messed something up. Boy, so now that's, this is what I was asking. Cause I, that's exactly how I go through it. But now here's the thing, because I've got Leslie, mm-hmm. there's this like, I can, so one, I want to, just acknowledge that your ability to maintain awareness and be vigilant is really astonishing. You are much, much better at that than I ever have been. Uh, and again, I've got the crutch. I've got Leslie there. So I don't have to like, I don't have to think about being aware because I have somebody right there like on my shoulder being like, Hey, hey, white guy, are you aware? You know, white guy, what the hell are you doing? Right. But so same kind of deal when I, I, you know, fuck up, mess up, whatever it is. It's typically embarrassment. It's typically a little bit of shame. Um, but so I, I obviously don't go to Leslie and say, Oh, please make me feel better. But so right. if the, if the person making me aware of that is Leslie, I don't have to, I, I, the shame, embarrassment, it doesn't impact my relationship with her because she's my wife and I know I've got this loving relationship. So now right. I'm asking, how do you deal mm-hmm. with, cause I'm, I'm thinking of other listeners. I think there's a lot of people that listen to this, that I've in, interacted with people that tell me, Hey, I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I don't have a lot of people. I don't have a lot of community. So right. how would somebody, um, you know, like, you know, we feel embarrassment. We've been, we realize in a moment of embarrassment that we've been asleep and we're unaware. Now what? So one of the ways that sometimes stuff comes up for me is, is, uh, uh, I'm trying to get my head around some words around this, which is, uh, I'm thinking in pictures and I'm trying to get words around it. So, uh, when I have a, a mishap or a misstep or I've been asleep or however that is, and all of a sudden I'm jarred back into reality you know, one of the things I know that I, I don't know that I can talk necessarily feelings around it all the time, but I know one of the things that happens is that I want to defend myself, mm. right? So I want to defend myself mm. and, and sometimes it's, well, it, so that's something or, um, overcompensation the other way. So I want to be, you know, I want to go, Oh God, I really messed that up. Well, but, and not, Oh, but I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it of, Oh, look, I'm okay. I'm going to, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix it good. And I'm going to fix it fast. And I want everybody to see that I'm fixing it so that you realize that I'm not the, you know, ridiculous (sighs) asshole that I just may have been in that moment. 
can, I, I, can I just interrupt you? That is, you just described yourself so well. There's been a, a few interactions where you've, you've done that, where you've overcompensated. And I really was like, Oh my gosh, Rev, that was not at all. like, like I love you. And I, 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 I I'm touched that you like, thought you enough to, to, yeah, to, I, the, you know, <laughs> specifically with, with, I think it was Leslie or something. And it was Probably. like, it was like, it was like, you know, but I, I think it's, I think that's a, I don't want to call it an endearing quality, but you know, <laughs> let, I'll just say this, the, the, People that, that fuck up in and around Leslie, by and large, never acknowledge or take responsibility. So going too far the other way is never a like, you're never going to have egg on your face with that. You know? <laughs> well, and some of that comes from, there's a, there's a number of different reasons that that's been, uh, that that's a, that's actually a, more of a spiritual practice for me that's been going on for a long time, connecting around, noticing, uh, you know, noticing when mistakes have been made uh and and taking regular note of that and seeing about okay well what's my part in that and what do you think maybe i need to clean up my side of the street and that's been a regular part of my life for a good long time and so the thing is is those categories of where i may have messed up have expanded now to recognize that some of the ways that i need to take inventory on a regular basis has to do with where my privilege has been in the lead rather than my uh, stepping back and trying to, to not work out of that as a, as a first piece. So it, I come from that already and that's where that overcompensation, <laughs> but I'll tell you though, there's another piece. I mean, you know, my, my, my master's thesis was on forgiveness. So I pay, I noticed apologies and forgiveness. I mean, I spent a lot of time, uh, working on that theologically, academically. That's a, that's something that's meaningful to me so that, uh, that I am, tr I try to be very uh, intentional about it when I do mess up, which is not something that certainly I I'm not going to speak for our culture big writ large because there is no big culture writ large. But I know from the groups of people that I seem to be interacting with, and then groups of people that I watch and follow, you know, a lot of times we're not so good about apologizing and we're not good about forgiving. And so just the fact that I do it overtly at all seems to shock people yeah you're I, I agree with your assessment you know we we do the the apology scale on yes. the, the john and you know they're always just terrible they start yeah. with you know if you were offended and you know sorry if you were this and i didn't mean it and all these things about me rather than you know the crux of it is i'm sorry i made this mistake i'll correct the behavior let me rectify it you know and so the in this same context we're getting into like an apology stuff but for me the I came to an understanding that um, I'm never going to get it right and I'm going to mess up all the time. And even worse, this was really hard for me to grasp and it, it was upsetting, but it, it seems almost, I don't know what it is about me and maybe it's white male, maybe it's privilege. I don't know, but it seems borderline impossible. And I shouldn't say, but, but three, two, four, almost everything I've learned has come at a moment of somebody else's pain, like the things that stick with me, like we talked about, like, Oh, I'm, I'm jarred back into consciousness, usually at embarrassment or shame, um, at messing up and messing up typically means that you've microaggressed, you've, you've misstepped, you've done something to a marginalized individual. And, yeah. and that, that's, 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 you know, like I, I do feel shame about that. And those are the things that, that, that I learned the most from, you know, like the smack on the nose is going to reinforce my behavior in a, way much differently than almost anything else. And that, I don't want to say that sucks, but so I've kind of like, 
you know, I had to learn how to apologize and own stuff. And, you know, you're right about well, in some ways, in some ways, right. That's right. It, there's a, that's part of how, what, how we pay, right. That's part of what that rep, part of, part of that. And I don't mean monetary reparations, but some, but that's part of the emotional and spiritual and psychological uh, reparations is apologies and, and not just apologies, but amends. And yeah. those are two different things, right? So an apology, it costs something to apologize truly, which is why so many people, I think, like to do these crap apologies because it doesn't cost them anything. Yeah, but the, 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 you know, and I, I, I don't know if I've talked on this podcast, but I, I had a, a run in with an individual in Philadelphia and I, you know, I, I kind of stepped in it really badly and we had to have kind of a sit down with people and I, I definitely, Hat in hand, I apologize. I owned my behavior. I said I did this and it, you know, I, you know, it harmed you in this way. And a black woman was like, I've never had a white person say that to me before. You yeah. know, like straight up, like you said, like it's not, and that's not, I'm not proud of that or anything, but it was like, right. uh, that I was saddened that this is an individual, you know, my age that, that has lived their whole life and has probably been, uh, hurt and, and damaged by white people. No end. And has never heard one say, I'm sorry for their behavior. That's, yeah. that's yeah. wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that right there, I mean, when, when we're looking, you know, like Dr. Fleming is talking about there, there's more than one way uh, that, that money is not the only way to profit is, doesn't have to be material, right? It's also social, which means that some of the ways that we can make reparations and pay back, it should be monetary and it needs to be social. It needs oh, to yeah. be right and apologies and i mean didn't haven't been thinking about this before it's just kind of coming out of this conversation i'm glad we talked this long to get here right uh apologies and amends are another avenue then they become another part of and and you know i mean look at reparations it means repairing right and trying to to do that apologies and, and amends and i, I want to talk for a second about that so an apology is one piece right that's the that's the initial um beginning because it's an acknowledgement of that wrongdoing and there's there's steps to it and i love i mean like like i just was mentioning right looking at apologies and amends is something that's been part of my life for a long time but i i do it i'm so much more conscious because of those steps that you and leslie put together in the john and so i love that and i use that now in a much more conscious way and it's made me better at it even though it sucks. I hate doing things that I have to apologize for. I hate that I do. It's awful, right? I hate having to make, have, having to pay that price because it does, uh, it's painful sometimes. Yeah. And yet it's, it's also, uh, that's what, that's what I have to pay, right? That's the cost of, of fucking up. Like, like I do on a regular basis. Uh, but the amends part is different because amends are different than an apology. An amend is looking, um, for a change. To, to amend something is to make an amendment is right to create a change. And so making amends is not about just saying, I'm sorry, making amends is that I'm going to make a change. And that is part two. That's the next piece to it uh, is, is how do I make amends? And sometimes I know within, within some uh, uh, circles that, that use that language a lot and that use amends, you know, you don't have to, the other person may never be able to right? like the person you were talking about for a minute, like maybe they never wanted to talk to you again. They were like, Nope, done. That was, that was, they came literally with that exact sentiment. So you can make amends without, if, if a person is, is going to be uh, 
hurt more by you directly apologizing or you directly trying to, you know, show them how you're making the behavior, which I think is what's the truth for a lot of white people mm. in terms of and how, how oppression has worked with, you know, with the folks that were actively, you know, oppressing and indirectly oppressing. Uh, so I think that one of the things to remember is that amends changing our behavior. That's, that's the next piece where if it doesn't directly affect that individual, it's a part of directly affecting how much more damage I'm going to be doing in the future, which does change a bigger dynamic and does have a piece of this reparations, this repairing of the breach that we've created. So both of those together are really important. I mean, there's on some level, there's no amends you can make on some things. Like a microaggression happens, you can't take it back. Like you've harmed that, that person. But, but the amends isn't about taking it no, back. I, the amends is changing for the future. That's, I'm, I'm agreeing with you saying that there's there are certain things that you can't make the individual you harmed whole. Like what Correct. you've done has been done. You can't make that individual whole, but you can make amends by being a better person, not making that mistake again, being a better, you know, uh, you know, better, better person. Yeah. It's, well, uh, an even better person. I don't know, you know, but I can definitely do everything I can to not make that mistake again and to not hurt somebody that way again. Yeah, I completely agree. And you hit two points. The beginning that we talked about, don't do the like, oh, I'm sorry if you're offended. Like the sort of equivocating, I, I feel I want to defend and, and explain. Yeah. And I, I, I say that all the time. Explanations are really excuses after the fact. And, you know, I have to remember that because I do that all the time. And I, I even, I, I had a, a mess up where I, I apologized. And then I said to the person, I said, you know, I, I really, I, I know this is an excuse after the fact, but I would like to explain simply you know, put it, just explain it. And the person said, you know, thank you for that. You know, I, I I understood that your intent wasn't that, but I really appreciate hearing that, you know, how this kind of happened. But so I I try not to explain, I just sort of acknowledge and own it. And then that second piece you're talking about, the sort of talking about amends and sort of the apology. I see so many white people, the, the entire purpose of the apology. And then the sort of, I'm going to, you know, please, it really boils down to please tell me I'm not racist. Please accept my apology and absolve me. The person I've just harmed, I need you to absolve me of feeling like I'm a horrible, no good racist. So please right. accept my apology right now on the spot. Get over your hurt and accept my apology. So, you know, don't do those two things and you'll be leaps and bounds ahead of a lot of people. But we've been going and going and I love it. And I love you. Thank you for to the time. As a, and- well, thank you. It's good for me to think that through a little bit more and a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit deeper and kind of consider that. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate you being here on a, on a Friday. I know there's lots of other things we could be doing and, and I appreciate you taking the time, but I want to talk about the book. Mother's oh Massive God, Resistance. Book. It really like. It's I've, so important and so infuriating. It, it really, really is. And I, I, I don't even know how to get into it, but I like, <laughs> I highlighted and dog-eared pages and just was like, you know, on and on and on and on. I was, I was on the train. I was on the train just with my, with my, my ruler and my pencil, like every other page, it, it was, I, I, it took me, it took me forever to read the first 60 pages because I was circling and underlining everything. I, I read the introduction and I thought that was the first chapter. And I, yeah, I, I was like, I, I was like, wow, this is really, you know, but then I started, okay, this, the, the author's laying out in the introduction, what each chapter is going to be. And then when I read the first chapter, I was like, holy cow, this is really like a, a, a historical anthology of 
and it is white women. And, you know, I, I don't mean to malign white women. My mom's a white woman, but white women's role in upholding and maintaining white supremacy. And yeah. the, I don't know about you, but the, the parallels between what white women did in the 1920s and what I'll just call good progressive liberals do in 2018 is just, it was astounding and scary and depressing, you know? Yep. yep. Well, what, what, why don't you, why don't you pick a spot there, whether you want to start in the introduction? Yeah. Cause there's, there's some great, I think there's a couple of important pieces in the introduction before we even get in the book. Uh, luckily the introduction do, it starts with, you know, like page one. So we didn't have to do all the Roman numerals first and then get to page one. So at least we were jumping right in with the introduction. Yeah. The, the, I, I highlighted two pieces and I'll, I'll, I'll read right. the one. Uh, and I'm trying to get this so I can read it and actually and speak since, into since the mic. Let me just mention too, since we're hoping that people were going to read along with us, I'm going to assume or I'm going to hope that some people have the book. And I think some folks tweeted about it and said that they were going to. So let's, if we are going to quote something, let's make sure we get page numbers so that we can all kind of, for those of us that are reading along. Ah, can good point. With that. So I'm on uh, page 10. We're in the introduction. And uh, this is the second paragraph moving from the 1920s into the 1970s. This is the author talking about the book. The book charts the long era of massive support for racial segregation and the white women who served as its crucial workforce. The chapters are organized around real and perceived threats to racial segregation as envisioned by its female advocates. When white Southern women entered the polity, many did so with a pledge to uphold legal segregation and for generations, female grassroots activists sustained and reproduced segregation in their communities. And that, that to me is the crux of the book is it's going to, it's this detailed anthology of how, uh, and, and really oftentimes a, a, a subtle, a silent role, right? Like in yeah. their communities, very, very forward, but in the history books, not necessarily remembered as the, as the driving force. Right. And that actually gets to at the end of the introduction. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with this because that part, this is what broke it all open for me was the end of the introduction that I that I had to go, oh, my brain has now got to turn this way. It's like I just turned into a pickle from a cucumber and I can't go back to thinking another way again. So I'm looking at page 18 here uh, and I'm going to skip to a couple of different okay. spots on the page. But on page 18, uh, up at the, at the second line down, focusing only on the hardline segregationists and not those who spoke in a colorblind language or those who found fertile ground outside of the far right makes us miss the widespread commitment to racial segregation and the various ways it continued decade after decade after decade even in the face of apparent defeat white women remade the jim crow order in part by training new generations of activists and adherents and we'll skip a little bit in that Oof. paragraph their work remained important and often beyond federal purview. Their experience told them that white supremacist politics enacted on a local level in school board decisions, in teacher training, in bureaucratic categorizations, in public welfare policies, and in historical narratives would prove more difficult to uproot and eradicate than national or even state-led policies. And, and look at this, that it worked. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a frightening, uh, reality that it has been this rooted. And the, the chapters, the second one about education, I've always long posited that the educational institution was one of the most, uh, rooted in white supremacy from what books we have to what teachers teach those books to who decides what gets, you know, yep. studied. 
And that just proved it. Chapter two was yeah. like such a, st- and, and listen to how they, the grassroots organizing, like they really, really, really put their minds together and went out yeah. and set about and did this. And we're, we're all suffering because of it. Well, and I let, so in, later on in this, just even on this page, when it, they're talking about, uh, that, that this grassroots is part of it, but it was, it was, it became almost invisible because it was being done by women. And it was being done outside, like I said, of the of the obvious big picture, front page of the newspaper, big dramatic things that were happening by the white men, right? Mm-hmm. And so down here, uh, and, and then, right, so white supremacist women recreated the signs of racial segregation generation after generation, but they often did not take center stage in the media drama that played out of the nation's televisions. These literal, these literal signs of segregation, so intrinsic to the story of civil rights and American freedom, do play a powerful role in the history told about the civil rights movement, in part because they were removed, offering up a story of redemption, right? So the big obvious things like, like the actual school segregation, uh, things like the Civil Rights you know, Act, the s- voting rights act those things when when those pieces were put into place they were obvious they were important you know they are powerful and because the barriers to those right the obvious uh you know end to people not wearing hoods anymore right that that was now ashamed you couldn't do that anymore so those were obvious pieces it made it seem like because that changed somewhere there was redemption, somehow we had conquered this idea of white supremacy when the opposite was true. Yeah. And these other, those obvious things kind of, kind of were the shiny object. Yeah. Look over here. Look over here. Right. 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 And there's, I think there's parallels to, to, to today, you know, like 45 is such a, a friggin' unmitigated dumpster fire on a, on a literal daily basis that that everyone in the media and we all focus on on him and you know there's probably other individuals and certainly lots of other things like uh liberal progressive white people uh upholding and maintaining uh you know supremacy than than just what 45 is doing i'm not taking anything away he's he's doing a lot of damage but we can focus on one individual and one office and one institution and and forget about everything else that is still upholding and maintaining these systems well, you know, there's there's big obvious pieces, and then there's these little, you know, insidious. Now, social media has shifted some of that in terms of at least of of opening up avenues for talking about things that normally wouldn't have been talked about. That that those were tools that were not at people's disposal, and the the voice, you know, the the voice of the oppressed didn't have the same big big uh, stage. That there are certain areas that are a little more open now, but that just makes some of this more obvious stuff become become bigger yeah so anyway that's a good yeah that's a great segue because there's literally each of these chapters talks about the big obvious thing and then the 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 they name the white woman that in the background uh you know upheld and maintained it so uh first chapter is uh, called the color line in virginia and i i don't know how to do this with folks i hope people are reading along um i don't want to like read the book on the, on the podcast, but I'll I'll just kind of give a a general flavor in case you haven't read the book. So, uh, the color line Virginia is talking about a, an act that was uh, instituted in 19, was it 18, 1912? Uh, 
1924. Thank you. Uh, no, it was 1924. Racial Integrity Act. I'll have to look at the notes, but the Racial Integrity Act, uh, was enacted in Virginia and it, it forced people to identify in a very binary way as black or white. It did a couple things. It, it reduced the, uh, in order to be considered not black, you had, I think, you know, the one drop rule is at one point and they put it down to one eighth and now it went to one sixteenth. But so the, the Racial Integrity Act forced people to identify individuals as black or white. And, and a lot came from that. A lot stemmed from this sort of forced identification along a, a binary black or white. And really what it was, it, it, as I read more and more, it wasn't forcing people to identify as black or white. It was othering black people very specifically from, from other folks, even mulatto and indigenous and, uh, you know, uh, other folks. But so the Racial Integrity Act, the individual they're talking about in this chapter is uh, a woman named Goodman. And the first confrontation they had was with an individual named Clark, who in Virginia lived in an area that was, uh, I would say integrated, had a lot of mixed, uh, marriages, had a lot of people that would, had both white and indigenous and black, uh, family members and identities. And they show, the author shows through the census in this area, people identified as mulatto, identified as, as all these things, not black, not white. And once the Racial Integrity Act came into place, it was like, you have to identify these folks. And so an individual was trying to get married. And at the time, uh, there was anti-miscegenation laws. There was a, a law preventing uh, interracial marriages. And the individual says, I'm black. They're identifying as black and wants to get married. And Goodman's like, no, you know, I, I live here. I know the history. I know you. And so I'm going to just read this quote. Uh, when Goodman faced Clark, she had to take into account local history, sort of her knowledge of the area and practices or loyalty to the Jim Crow state. She chose the state. And I, you know, that's just a, I think that was an emblematic of, uh, white women in this chapter choosing the state, choosing to, to support, um, you know, segregation, you know, and they, they, so from that, there's lots of, lots of women they talk about throughout the chapter and, and what the implications is racial, uh, integrity act had. Um, and I've, I've, I literally have like 10 pages talking rep. I don't yeah, know what. Oh, I know me too. I'm looking, I'm looking at all. There's a couple of pieces around this too, because this wasn't, so one of the one of the things that white women continue to do too is right is is uh, subjugating. I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, kind of in some ways, right? Choosing the the piece that is the that is the uh, the privilege the the bigger privilege, right? Whiteness, and and going ahead and throwing their. Uh, the woman side out and any, and, and going ahead and taking, taking sides with the white men. Right. So how does, how does whiteness supersede the, uh, the nonsense that goes on for women too? So they're, they're actually undermining their own abilities and their own sense, you know, the, 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 the issues that can cut that the way that white men are oppressing women, a lot of white women, will go ahead and throw themselves under the bus to the altar of white men, right? Because uh, in terms of being able to lose uh, freedoms for their own bodies, for their own sexuality, for their own pieces around purity, 
uh, that's just it, like you said, it continues today, right? We've been seeing it the last few weeks. It's been pretty obvious. Yeah, we we talked at the beginning of the show about the different oppressions. I didn't even realize I had highlighted this 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 line. It's page twenty five, beginning of the second uh, first paragraph on that page. Goodman's embrace of racial standardization put her in the company of other white women who, as new bureaucrats, embarked on the sorting out of the American population according to race, ethnicity, delinquency, and mental fitness. Look at that. Not just race. They're, 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 they're othering and using, uh, you know, mental, uh, you know, delinquency, uh, class and other things to, to sort and categorize, uh, and other folks and, and really prevent them from engaging in, uh, many, many things. So later on in that, on that page actually is a whole, is really key for me. Uh, women, d- and this is so page 25. Look, the, look the, I just got to show you. Look, I know we're on camera. People, look, I highlighted the same paragraph. Go ahead and read <laughs> it. <laughs> Women did, and this is a longer paragraph, but I want to read it here. Women did more than work for the state. In the quest for racial purity, white women constituted both the subjects of racial integrity and its labor force. Women's bodies were the landscape on which the policing of racial racial intermixing often took place. And that in there, right there, I'm stepping out of the out of the quote there for a second because that includes white women's bodies were also the landscape where the policing was taking place. They were policing themselves yep. as well as policing other women that were not white too. And the, the next right. sentence explains that too. You want to read that yep. one? If protected, for, this is back into the into the quote here. If protected from interracial liaison. Contemporary race scientists argued white women would purify and invigorate the nation. If white women sought out sexual liaisons with non-white men, however, they could also serve as potential transgressors, ruining racial purity and by the consequence enervating the nation. Beyond their reproductive capacity to strengthen or weaken the nation, eugenicists argued that women carried in their very genetic makeup the power to recognize race mixing. They were vital to the enforcement of racial purity and and vital in in more ways than one. Like you're saying, they were the, the, the thing to be protected, right? White women were the the assumed innocence and protection of white women from, uh, black men. And that, that framing gives us the trope of the, the over-sexualized black brute, the, you know, all the sort of vilification and demonization of, of black men that came from sort of protecting white women in this way. Well, and let's also, I mean, in hearkening back even, you know, for a long time when you're looking at the what women, what white women were, right, the innocence and their value, because there was value around, right? This was also about ownership, whether in actual monetary or just in ownership in terms of dowries, in terms of how women, you know, did couldn't exist on their own. That goes back thousands of years too, right? So the purity was about what their value is, not that women had purity and in, in and of themselves that was to be upheld. It had to do with what made them valuable to their white men connected to that. So I want to lift that up too. So this is still in connection to where are they valued yeah. in terms of the men, in yeah. terms of the white men. So uh, the fact, we're back in the, this paragraph now, the fact that women often had the most access and uh, not and to, and access to and knowledge of the places where this racial classification would occur, the bedroom, the birthing room, and the classroom enhanced their alleged genetic pro- proclivity for detecting mixed-race individuals. The midwife had to certify race on birth certificates. Jim Crow state policy instructed the white school teacher to report to the school superintendent's office the children she suspected of mixed-race heritage. Can you imagine that? The social worker recorded the ethnic, the racial identities of the families with whom she worked, 
deciding race based on a host of behavioral and hereditary observations, often mixed with a dose of local gossip. The local registrar had to turn in marriage licenses to each state's Bureau of Vital Statistics and the RIA, which is uh, that uh, Racial Integrity Act, the RIA and accompanying eugenic legislation nationwide created public policies that required enforcement by those familiar female faces. And the the author brings that that same point back that, you know, history books will remember the, and I forget the name of the the man that is in charge of the Racial Integrity Act in Virginia, um, but history remembers his name. And they talk about how horrible he was and all of the power he had and the things that he did, but they don't remember all these white women that were doing his bidding by, by birthing babies and labeling them black because of mixed race heritage by denying and, and making registrars and, 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 and the educational component. Uh, yeah, the, the harm done by does, those women is so much more than, oh, than one man. It, it's amazing. And so the piece of this, right? So if, if you label someone black, then that's going to limit their ability of what neighborhood that they can live in, what schools they oh, yeah. can go to kind of education so let's be clear what this is about and you know in regulating marriage too the same way you know uh, i don't want to jump ahead but i literally wanted to write in the show notes this picture of the investigators it it's on page 20 where are we here oh, 32, 32 page 32 yeah. it it really just it made my blood boil oh my god that was so just insidious but before we get to that i wanted to read one piece on page where are we here Page 29. Uh, so this Racial Integrity Act, um, at the same time in 1924, I'll read uh, the last paragraph. By 1924. Well, also, that's where I have underlined too. <laughs> uh, see, we're on, this is why we together, Rev. This is why we, this is this why we besties. Your uh, wife keeps saying that we're the same person. Uh, we are kind of like, uh, from, from uh, uh, anyway. By 1924, <laughs> federal Indian law complicated the already, me- already messy politics of racial identity. Passed the same year as Virginia's RIA, the Indian Citizenship Citizenship Act made Native Americans living in federally recognized Indian nations U.S. citizens with the right to vote. The Citizenship Act did not apply to those of Native ancestry in Western Virginia as they were not a federally recognized tribe. And the nation building among Native Americans like the Cherokee and the Choctaw in the Jim Crow era had meant drawing lines between Indian citizens and black Indians often in the language of blood quantum, in effect, denying those with black, white, and Indian ancestry the right to native identity. And, and wait, I want we got to go to the next sentence here for a okay. second because this is key right here. I was going to go ahead. Oh, okay. No, go, you read it. Go ahead, read it. Banned from full membership to in native nations, mixed race individuals living outside federally recognized nations were also denied the full rights of U.S. citizenship, which will include voting. Yep. And that's happening right now in this, right now, right now. I don't know if you're following this. Oh yeah. In North Dakota, do you know what do you know what I'm getting at right yeah, now? Yeah. Go ahead. Right in North Dakota right now, uh, Native American Indigenous peoples uh, are being denied their uh, their voter registration because of uh, the re- their requirement has just changed that they need to show uh, their address, their physical address. But if you're living uh, if you're uh, enrolled in, in certain tribes and with certain uh, living on certain uh, reservations, pieces like that, the government doesn't give you an address. They give you a P.O. box and a P.O. box means that you cannot vote. So, yeah, to get the, the benefits of the one piece, you're denied this other access. And it it, it also That's happening right now. Yeah. This is not history. It's happening today. 
It's 2000. It's October 2008. The, the other thing that this reminded me of was this sort of notion of, and I, I can't, I don't know, I'm going to use the right words, but this sort of like pitting one group against the other, you know, like they literally, in, in, by doing this, were forcing indigenous folks that wanted to, to, to have sort of improve their station and power and, and organize, they had to draw lines and say, you, you black folks aren't part of this because you're not allowed. Like the, 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 the government set up a system whereby two marginalized groups were fighting each other and, and denying each other, uh, representation because they had to get their piece. And that's, I think that goes on still today. These, all these pieces were not good for anybody that wasn't white. Yeah. None of it, this wasn't good for the, indigenous peoples of the time either right this is about saying either then you're going to be if you're if you're going to be able to fall in the roles for within a native american a recognized right a recognized quote-unquote native american tribe that means uh or peoples right that means that you're recognized by who the white government yeah so you can only number one you can only exist if we say you're going to exist and if you're going to exist even with the, the we're going to give you boundaries of how you can exist. That is ultimately going to mean you have limited the way that we're going to let you exist. We do that to today. Your ability to full citizenship and to uh, limit your ability to be able to move freely, work freely, exist freely, live freely within white society. The, 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 the really unfortunately symbolized real ID by a gold star on driver's licenses is, is literally that in modern form. You know, there's going to be a point where the real ID gold star is going to be required to fly in a plane, right? If you don't have a real ID, you can't fly in a plane. What the hell is that? My wife can't get a real ID for all the same reasons, right? She's not on our mortgage. So she's not on the, 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 paperwork for the house. So she's like, okay, how do you prove that you actually live here? Well, I didn't put her name on any of the utility bills because she's an activist and an organizer and I've got the job. So like, it was like a struggle to prove her friggin' residency here. And that was like one piece. The other one, the social security number was, it was almost impossible. If you don't have your actual social security card, they kept saying you could have a, a W-2, a tax form or a 1099. Well, have you seen one recently? They block out your social security number. It's like XXXXX and then the last four digits. That didn't work, you know, so they, they do all this stuff now. And I don't know where it was in this chapter, but do you remember the piece they had about white people doing purity certifications? That this, oh, that yeah. this, this racial identity nonsense, uh, spurred a, a burgeoning, uh, you know, like certification. You have to have your whiteness certification, your birth certificate, all this kind of stuff. But so the, I mentioned the, the investigators. Yeah. 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 So page 38. Uh, here I'm, I, I just have a, a piece of it here. So it's on, on page 38, looking at some of that, uh, where, uh, where people were actually paying for documentations for, to, to falsify documentation, to try to achieve that certification. Here we are in the middle of page thir- uh, 38 rumors told that after the passage of the RIA in 1924, people came selling whiteness certificates for as much as $10,000, $10,000 in 1924. God damn. A clear accounting of not what individuals actually paid, but what they believed whiteness was worth. That's a market supply and demand, ain't it? That's nuts. Right there. Forgive me, that was ableist. Yeah, that, 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 that was just, I was like, that's, it makes sense. You know, but $10,000 a night. I'm going to have to do one of these like historical currency conversions and see just how much that is in, in 2018 money. They put an actual value on whiteness. 
well, provable whiteness. Right. And part of this, this piece around this whole chapter around deciding, you know, who's white, who's not one drop, not recognizing that people have lots of different right? we have may have, uh, many different, you know, mixed, mixed racially and biracial and multiple, not even just that, right. There's so many different options and that's a reality in humanity. But in, in the way this all worked, um, on page 39, they call it uh, institutional memory, uh, generational instruction, and local prejudice continued the practice of racial segregation. And this is the word, doc- documentary genocide, long after the law pronounced it dead. So the law wound up not necessarily, you know, being into practice anymore. It was long repealed, you know, it got repealed at some point. But the way that it has continued, these practices more covertly and just the fact that they were they became kind of built into the bigger systems because these systems were being created here too has created documentary genocide which is some of what you're just you're talking about right now that we that there isn't on paper you can kill a whole people you can destroy you can you can remove a whole people by by saying they don't exist by not giving the, them the documentation to begin with by yeah. not documenting actually who they are you can you can erase them yeah, and I just want to make a footnote because I mentioned the investigators. I'm going to have to talk about it, but it was a section of the chapter that uh, the eugenics movement was uh, burgeoning and they actually had uh, proponents and folks in universities and, and mm-hmm. academia. And uh, they sent groups of little white women, uh, you know, working on their theses uh, into Virginia and other places to racially identify people, to literally just categorize people. And the the, the, the categorizations they had were just like 52 ways of saying not white and white. Right. So the end of the chapter, I do want to bring this up because I think this is really important too, because a lot of this is about this, this erasing and, and at, on the, on the, at the end of page 39 here, in the end, this historical selection does valuable work rendering invisible the women and the daily acts that secured white supremacy. What it leaves in, intact is the myth of a system that persisted with leaders at the center but without local people and communities. The writing out of white women's efforts to police the racial order promotes the white supremacist fiction that segregation was natural and it happened without workers. It also promotes the belief that if the law or the legislature or the government changes, then the practices, institutions, and beliefs that guides those pro- that guide those practices will also end. Yeah. And we know that that is not the case. Well, and there's even the, 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 uh, the individual's name is Plecker, who is, uh, sort of the head of the RIA, uh, mm-hmm. initiative. And at one point, there was a court case that, that they lost and they actually made an amendment. So the, the white women and other people that supported this racial, uh, identification act changed the, the act. They got a, a, an amendment passed that allowed Plecker to retroactively change and alter people's birth certificates. Right. right. So they lost a court case because of somebody's birth certificate and then they made an amendment. So four years later, it's like, oh, well, we can just go back and change their birth certificate. So as you're talking about document death, you know, think about they gave this individual Plecker the ability to change birth certificates, amend birth certificates. And people remember Plecker as sort of the architect of the RIA, but not not all the white women that really did the, the day-to-day bidding. The midwives that, that, that labeled babies, the people that, that went in and would, they, they say suspect this individual has, has black facial features. I think that the, they're passing as white. They would out people. They would out people to deny them the, you know, the benefits of whiteness. 
or behaviors too, because that was another one, right? They had social workers looking at this too. So yeah. a behavior that they could potentially deem uh, not white, right? And But this idea, this last piece of this paragraph is really what was like one of those like, oh man, this is insidious and this is why, this is why I didn't know about any of this stuff until I'm an adult thinking about it and somebody's pointing it out to me and pointing it out to me is because it was, it was, in, it was built this way. Yeah. It was built for me to not notice it. It was built for me to not know. It, it was built for me to believe that, uh, that the racial order, right. There's that segregation is natural. It happened without, it happened without workers that it happened on its own. Right. And that once the bad people are gone, then it'll be okay, right? Once this older generation dies out, we're all going to be okay. Yeah. Then, then the next, the next generation that's more enlightened is gonna is gonna be able to take over. Oh. So you, you mentioned this sort of like the occlusion and the hiding of this very real history from us, and I'm I'm jumping ahead, but the next chapter is about uh, the educational institution. And yeah, let's go. The, so the the. Miss Rutherford uh, as an individual that had a big impact, but she wrote a scrapbook textbooks, the South responsibility. And this is about what textbooks should, and we'll get more into this, but I'm pointing these out because the footnote on this says, this is the author had to research this. So they had to find this scrapbook and it was found courtesy of the Harvard rare book and manuscript library. So this thing's, you know, it's a document about how this woman, you know, went about, uh, lifting and maintaining ways. But we, we had to go to rare books and manuscripts repository to find it. You know, that's how hidden all this stuff is. Yeah. People yeah. don't want to remember it. No. Nope. All right. So the, the second chapter citizens, uh, citizenship education for a segregated nation. Uh, and again, I'll, if folks don't have the book, I haven't, I'll just try to give a, a really broad synopsis. Um, but essentially the chapter is talking about white when one white woman's role in there's no other way of saying it, whitewashing and reshaping the language and history specifically surrounding the Civil War um, by demanding textbooks use specific language and removing language from other textbooks, creating lists of approved textbooks. And the parallels to now are just astounding. So Dr. Ronnie D. Byrne uh, is a friend of my wife, Leslie's Ronnie D. Byrne. Uh, you can find her on, on Facebook. Uh, some people know her as the, that textbook mom, <laughs> that Texas textbook mom. But so she got uh, a video or a Facebook uh, live that went a little viral because her son brought home a textbook that literally referred to the Atlantic slave trade as migration, right? Like migration, yeah. like people migrated. And it, it wasn't, it was just like a, like one, I don't know how much it was, but it looked like one little piece, but it was important. And this, this word was really off. So she kind of, you know, used her voice, used her platform and, and got some changes with that, that book. But, you know, again, the parallels are just scary. There's a, a, a bit about, and I don't know where it was that these states that made these rules and enacted sort of, here's the, the textbooks that you're allowed to have. It, it was like it bypassed other ways of doing things. So if this state says this is the only book you can have, well, then that's the book that is available. And other people start using that same book because, well, you know, this is the book that's in Mississippi we used to hear. And it's happening today on a more like capitalistic economic basis. People that make textbooks, they have requirements, right? They, I'm, I make a textbook. I'm scholastic, whoever it is. I'm, I'm writing a textbook for this thing. And I have to meet certain requirements for, for this state or that state or whatever. And the biggest state, the one that buys some of the most textbooks is Texas. Mm -hmm. So the, the Texas rules 
end up being kind of the, the rules that the rest of the state gets. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, like, uh, California does this, but in a better way. California will pass a, a rule saying the emissions have to be this level. We're not allowed this kind of emissions. And for a while, manufacturers made, a, a, a lawnmower that could only be sold in California and one that could be sold everywhere else. Eventually, that's not very productive. That's not a very good way of manufacturing. The California model becomes everyone's model. And in, in, in emissions, that's a good thing. But the Texas school book, it's not. And if you look deeper with Texas today, right now, the Texas school board that decides what textbooks get bought for the state of Texas, seven people. Yep. Seven, you know, individuals, I almost a certainly white individuals that are making that decision. So uh, let's talk about, and what was her name? Let's get it right. Uh, Mildred Lewis Rutherford and how she reshaped, I, I think still to this day. Oh yeah. You know, to this day. Uh, but she had a, a singular crusade and it was interesting, her timing, right? You know, you could almost, I think the author posited is that you could pretend that this was a dying last gasp of a, a woman obsessed with the Confederate, but me, man, look at the impact she had. Yep. hundred years. Yeah. Well, so here's the, uh, I'm on page 42, 42. And this is the second full paragraph. Um, maybe like the third sentence in. So this is about Mildred. Uh, she believed that the public education helped shape politics and culture, and she focused on improving public education, building bureaucratic state-level structures, censoring textbooks, and centralizing teacher training. Uh, she was right, because the things that I think she did are, were still living with these. The reason I said that education is one of the most uh, steeped in supremacy uh, institutions is because a lot of the stuff that, that Mildred uh, enacted and and white women are, are still doing today yeah. and, and made it invisible. Yeah. Made it invisible. Yeah. Educators broadly defined, nurtured the system of segregation and children were the repositors of their efforts mm-hmm. still to this day. And so she, she, her crusade was basically about all the things you hear shitty white people talk about the civil war. Now, you know, it wasn't about slavery. It was about States rights. Uh, so she, yeah, I got, I got, I got a piece about that specifically, right? Oh yeah. Page forty-four, uh, about halfway, about halfway in. Um, let's see. This the reconstruction was a mistake sentence. Yeah. Uh, by World War One, a national consensus in textbooks offered to the nation's school children the following historical truths. Put this in, in quotes. Reconstruction was a mistake. American imperialism provided uplift to non-white people across the globe. The rise of the nation was a story of good Democrats and hardworking Anglo-Saxon Protestants. The broad cooperation, not conflict, among all classes of Americans characterized the nation's development. The elevation of this national historical narrative coincided with a decline in the textbook treatments of African Americans. There's another point where this woman's list of books that had 66 approved textbooks, not a one, not a single reference or picture of black Americans. Mm-hmm. All approved sixty-six seconds erased. Not a single reference of Black Americans. On, on page forty-five, here textbook became a lightning rod for wide-ranging discussions about citizenship education and its relationship to official or legitimate knowledge. So, if you're going to go, well, you know, how did how do you know this, right? How we learn and how we know how do you know the things that you know from textbooks, right? From how you, how you learn it in school. That's how we know what we know. And this is now. This is now the uh, becomes the foundation 
of what we know. Yeah. And that's not just for white people either, right? Like ultimately it's now, it's now, these are the textbooks that all the kids in public schools are reading, right? That, that the, this is how knowledge is coming. So this is also then it's, it's, uh, it's training white people in white supremacy and it's training black people in white supremacy, Latinx people in white supremacy, Native American people in white supremacy, Asian people in white supremacy. Like this, it's, this is training everybody in white supremacy. Yeah. And they really, uh, and this is, I'm on now page 46, uh, second paragraph, maybe we're down. Uh, da, da, da. No, no, no. Mildred Rutherford's efforts coincided with national efforts to control and purge questionable material, socialist propaganda, stories of labor strife, and generally un-American content from public school textbooks. Her Northern counterpart, Margaret Robinson, anti-suffragist, so forth and so on. Uh, but they're talking about her campaign to purge anti-patriotic material from the nation's textbooks. And I, I wrote in the margins that she's conflated oppression and patriotism. Yes. That's, that's the same thing today. Right. And well, and actually the part that you just dropped off is actually important. This Northern counterpart, Margaret Robinson, who was from Massachusetts, she, so part, so she's also joining in this part of that un-Americanness is Margaret, Margaret Robinson, right? She agrees in that. She's an anti-suffragist, which means that equality, voting equality for women then is anti-American. She's anti-radical. So obviously yeah. radicals are anti-American and, you know, active, anybody that's, uh, that's, looking to be contrary to this weird piece is just anti-American. Later in the chapter, this woman rallied and wrote and lectured against child labor laws. Yep. Like, like literally it was like textile mills employing children in South and North Carolina. It was un-American and, and that same thing, big government, right? And government telling us what to do in this factory. But I did, that to me was wild. They they really oppose child labor laws. My God. Yeah, they do because it it has to do with. Uh, I'm trying to find the pieces around that. The reason that they do that, and I watch this. I have family members that that still believe that actually still believe and live this out today, and their their argument and their fight against it is they believe that. Uh, oh God, I want to find the language, but essentially that uh, that you know big government and and uh, anti, you know, folks that are looking for, you know, getting rid of segregation and, and all this are imposing a government agenda, which is taking away the rights of parents to parent the way they want to parent, which also includes child labor laws, because you're now, you're now telling me that my kids can't work, which is taking away my authority yeah. over my children. And that's where that comes from. Whew. That's, that's, it's my, it, so you're taking away my right to parent, including the information that I'm giving to my children, which is around textbooks, right? Because as a white person, as, and even though they're not going to call themselves white supremacists, but you know, as a segregationist, yeah. which is the language but they it, use. And then, and then so if that, I want to teach, if I want to teach segregation and you're going to tell me that I can't, you're now impinging on my right as a parent. And that's a lot of this stuff comes down to that. And we, there, there's this Jordan Peterson guy now who's literally teaching an alternative humanities, right? Like it's, it basically, he's the, the anti-liberal sociologist and, and people are eating his stuff up and he's going to, he's probably going to have an online university accredit his alternative sociology. You'll be able to get a degree, an accredited degree from somewhere in alternative humanities, alternative sociology. And that's just, 
That's unbelievable to me. And once that happens, then becomes this false equivalency thing to say, well, there's, you know, the, the, this or that. There's good people on both sides. Two sides. You know, back to the other comment about this notion of global imperialism being good for non white people worldwide. Mm -hmm. I, I see that on Twitter all the damn time. You know, oh, yeah. people come to me talking about colonization of Africa was better for, for Africans in Africa. Like, that's just a belief system that people have. And this, this, the, the notions that, that, Robinson changed with regards to the Civil War. We're dealing, I, I see that all the time. Every other troll on Twitter believes the Civil War was about states' rights and not slavery. Yep. And it, yeah, it came from it came from these white women. Yeah. It and came from these white women. I, 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 I've lost my. I, I didn't take any notes for a period during the <laughs> section where they're talking about the essay contests. Oh. And, and the only thing I, I wrote down in the notes was that they basically bypassed the law, right? Like there was legislation that was like, okay, we're going to do this. And they just sort of like, okay, we'll, we'll do something our own way. But do you have more notes on the essay contest? Because that stuff was gross. Yeah, we're looking in pages like 50, 51, 52. Yeah. That's, that's where it gets into some of this here. So uh, uh, where am I here with this? I have a – here's one my – However popular, the essay contests were not universally welcomed by school officials. One Georgia school board denied the UDC permission to conduct their contest. Frustrated initially, a Sandersonville High School history teacher rescued the UDC mission by taking its materials and essay topics and integrating them into her regular curriculum. Delighted by the circumvention of school board control, UDC historian Louise Irwin credited the teacher with the most effective distribution of material yet. Irwin wrote that the operation of the teacher succeeded each year in having the contest subjects studied by all the pupils in senior class. So talk about these these essays, right? Like this was the thing, these essay contests, there would be like a topic, right? And and having students write an essay. I'm trying to find – and some of these topics, uh, so the, the essay, the, included scholarships. On the so topic of the conspiracy that began the Civil War. Right. That's one. the essay. A conspiracy that began the Civil War. Yep. And that's just one. That's just one. Right. So this happened all over. This happened over. In uh so there and with that again, scholarships, tuition assistance, uh, came with a lot of this. So you write on this and then you get to uh you get money. Yeah. Southern heroes, Robert E. Lee. Here's another one. One chapter. Here's the best essay written on Rutherford's pamphlet, The Civilization of the Old South. What Confederate organizations have done to win the Great War? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Wow. You know that, that uh, scrapbook that was in the Rare Books Manual? She actually yeah. sold that for a yearly subscription. So people, it was like a magazine. There's 10,000 subscriptions, and we got to go to a Rare Books and Manuscripts to find it? Yeah. So here's here's this these uh, a quote here on page fifty one without providing direct instruction in white supremacy. So so that's this right. So these essay contexts, things like that. When when certain things were outlawed, that, like you said, this is kind of an end run around it. We may not be able to teach it directly, but there's ways that this information will still be taught, and that's doing it indirectly by yeah. these essays. I mean, essay contests in the years following Brown decision. Oh wait, let me start that sentence again. Without providing direct instruction in white supremacy as essay contests would in the years following the Brown decision, these contests still linked white school children to a particular historical memory that celebrated white Confederate heroes, reinforced the doctrine of states' rights, and minimized the role of slavery in the Civil War. 
Mm. It's really a multi-pronged approach, right? Oh. It's almost like Miss Rutherford sat down and said, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna change the entire narrative on the South and the Civil War." Well, let's see how we can do that. We're gonna start with textbooks. Well, then let's do this essay. Well, I'm gonna publish a periodical. You know, it was really a a multi-pronged approach that has been lamentably very effective. I mean, well, and I, one of the ways it was effective is because it wasn't being seen because ever because there were other shiny things and not and it doesn't mean that those other things that were happening, but that the white men were doing, right? The 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 stuff that was happening in the that that people were paying attention to because of the intersection of misogyny with this too, right? There's a misogyny piece that's happening, so the attention is on all the big stuff that the men are doing that's big and flashy and folks, and that's the quote unquote important stuff, right? Because it's not women's work. Yeah, and the area of child rearing, which includes schooling, which in turns which includes birthing, right? That's women's work, which means it's not as important. So we don't have to pay a lot of attention to it because it's really not worth much, except that that's where you grow the next generation, the next generation. The well, next generation. in fact, the the author talks about teachers and the the sort of notion of women's work, in as much as that it was viewed as sort of a, a secondary parent role. That the right. teacher was a as an extension of the of the parental uh, household and and sort of you know right yeah. and 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 look at the right and so the categories right you've got uh, teachers and social workers and midwives which are all things that that uh, that used to be you know before before if you go further back right there weren't institutions around that but now institutions are growing up out of that and so that's still women's work which isn't paid as much which is considered secondary which is considered an extension of the household, which is considered not as important. And so you don't have to put your eyes on it. Don't pay attention to it. And it is the most insidious thing. Yeah. And they, all those things you mentioned, midwife teachers, they, they have so many, I'm trying to think of how to say this, but as a child goes from birth to 18, these are very uh, impressionable years. They've got so many hours between zero and 18 years. And Teachers, midwives, these people occupy a lot of time. They get a lot of hours of, a, of an 18 year old. You know, by the time I'm 18, my teachers have spent, in some instances, as much time with me as, as, a, as, a, as, you know, almost a parent. You know, they've been right. with me a lot. And right. the, the, you know, I want to go back to the sort of various suppressions and we always talk about race. And this is obviously talking about white supremacy, but, uh, you know, I, my textbooks were awful. You know, they, they talked about, manifest destiny and how the West was won. Nobody writes about genocide of indigenous peoples of North America, you know, uh, I guess Howard Zinn's the people's history and what there, lies my teacher told me is there are few, but not when yeah, I was in school. Well, and, and those aren't necessarily right. And people are writing that, but you're probably not going to read that until you're in college. And only if you're taking right. certain courses and it's sure as hell not in the textbooks that we're reading as we're learning. So we have to unlearn all the white supremacist history before we can, you know, before we can maybe even begin to open up our brain to learn the real stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think. I've got a couple of notes. I, I did mention in the beginning, uh, most of the 86 textbooks that uh, surveyed included no pictures of African-Americans and made no notice of their presence in American life after Reconstruction. So their, their curated textbooks erased blackness completely. Yeah. You know, we're talking about representation and, uh, you know, the impact that would have. If you don't ever see or read anything about black people, you never hear about black people, they're not allowed in your school and you're taught that they're inferior and all these other things. And then you read about the Civil War not being about slavery. 
what does that do? And what, and what does that do to you and that the generations that those individuals raise, you know? Yep. Well, and that's the thing. And it seems like you just know, and you think, well, where did I learn that? I don't know. I just, I just know it. I just learned, I just know it. Well, it must be true. Well, I read it in a textbook. Like, Uh, well, here's the, and maybe we, this is a long episode and, uh, yeah, we, we're going to need to wrap here pretty quick. Yeah. Here, here's the, this is, I think a good summation for, for Rutherford in this chapter. And this is again, I'm reading from the author on page 59. This is the second paragraph. The work of Rutherford, the UDC and the DAR and their progeny did speak to two trends that shaped white women's relationship to white supremacist politics and in turn molded the course of Jim Crow, Jim Crow segregation in the South. First, Rutherford instructed white women on the eternal vigilance needed in maintaining public instruction in Jim Crow. All right, so that's the the vigilance needed. Second, and this is now on page 60, the erasure of individual black achievement and the individuals from both history and the present took deep root not only in the public schools of the South, but also in the schools across the nation. In 1973, the pages of the Black Book, a path-breaking scrapbook-like publication of African-American history and culture in the United States, told a story of black achievement and black struggle unknown to many white and black Americans. Right. So we've got this piece that we've talked about before, right, that that uh, white supremacy and whiteness norms uh, norms the oppressor, right? It, it norms whiteness to everything. So white is, is just... Um, normal, right? It just is, and everything is named against it. So Americans are really the word that's not being said in that sense is white Americans, because we, and the reason we know that is because we name uh, African American, Asian American, Native American, right? So, and, and maleness does that too with women like that. That's the piece that happens. And so, you know, I hear about this, this black book and, lifting up the achievements, right? And it says in the struggles of, of African-Americans, of, of black Americans. And what's wild to me is, you know, an argument I hear when uh, around, you know, identity politics or identity, you know, you're coming out of this perspective where, oh, you have to have a black book. Of course, you, you know, you want to bring that in because you're black. You have a vested interest in making that important but it's not that important. You just want it to be important because it's about you. And same thing happens, right? I'm, I'm queer with the, you know, where straight people do that to the queer community. Oh, well, of course you want to have a gay pride month or, you know, you want to have a trans pride parade. You want to have that because it, you're queer. And it happens in all these marginalized communities that way. And the thing about this is the the honest to God truth is white people have been doing this all along too. It's just made invisible. I mean, we're reading about these white people creating these white realities and they didn't do it because for any other reason, except it was of value to them and it gave them more power. And it was, they had a vested interest in putting forward whiteness and all these white values, right? And it just, it just is so infuriating. It, the, 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 it's so funny, right? Like you think with all this power and with all these things that, that whiteness brings, invisibility is one of the most important tools. Yeah. And that's the, the, you know, the white normative default. And I was, I don't know who I was talking with about this, but they were talking about it being hard. To, you know, as a white person to, oh. to understand whiteness and it is being difficult and stuff. And I really had to think about it. And it, it kind of, I was it, I was working through this mentally, but I was like, you know, like learning a foreign language is hard. 
calculus is hard, you know, but like music theory is hard, but people learn music and learn to play the guitar and the piano and speak multiple languages all the time. Why is it they're able to do that? But white people aren't doing this with, with race and understanding whiteness. And I, maybe I'm, I'm thinking it differently, but the learning a skill like music, a foreign language, calculus, there's generally a interest, impetus and desire and a wealth of information because all of those things exist, right? There's interest and impet- reward. And, yeah. And reward, right? I, I have an interest, a desire and a reward for learning music and a foreign language. And because of that, people have given me a lot of tools to learn music and a foreign language. Almost the antithesis with understanding whiteness. There's no impetus. There's no desire. There's no interest. There's probably, if you're going to be real, it's not, a, I mean, there is a reward, but the reality is that, that we white people are going to have to give something up in order to have some equality in the rest of the world, right? So, and there aren't tools to do it. Yeah. And then because of all the things we just mentioned, yeah. nobody's out making friggin' tools to do it. Well, and the first tool is undoing a bunch of stuff, which is a hard thing to create a tool to undo as we've been trying to talk about and work on. Yeah, that's the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect. You don't know what you don't know, right? So if you don't know, like, I know that I don't know music theory. <laughs> like, I know that I can't speak Arabic. I know it's a language and it exists and it, you know, I, I don't speak it, but I know that I don't speak it. But the things I don't know, I don't know I'm missing it, you know? And the things that, that white people don't know is that, that white is a race. Whiteness is a race. And let's start critiquing and analyzing what it is to be white and what is meant to be white uh, over the years and what those well, implications are for everybody else. Privilege is a thing. Yeah. And, and what it's, what, that it exists and it exists for a purpose and that it exists undercover and that it exists in being invisible. There's a purpose to that and there's a reason for it. And, but, you know, it's hard to see what, what has been designed to not be seen. Yeah. I'm looking or for recognize. The... Maybe I should use that more as, as trying to break free of some ableist language, right? It's harder to recognize something that's been designed to be unrecognizable. By, by design. Right. You know, that's its greatest, that's white supremacy's greatest tool uh, is, is hiding it in plain sight from everybody that benefits from it. You yeah. know, well, listen, uh, if you haven't been reading along, pick up, uh, mothers of massive resistance. We're going to keep reading it. We'll, uh, let's, let's commit now. Let's, let's try to be more actionable and, and, uh, do what we said we were going to do. So we read chapters one and two, which got us through page 60. What do you think we can commit and to? And the introduction. We, we have to give and ourselves credit to the, for the introduction too. <laughs> intro that was a, that was a two. <laughs> so what's, uh, the rest of the book, part two, Starts on page 106. That doesn't seem like much reading another 40 pages. Yeah, we can definitely do the next two chapters and then try maybe in the next in, in another episode, just like jump the whole part two. We'll see. We'll see how it, um, we'll see how, how meaty it is. Okay. Well, we'll minimally read up the, the first part of the, uh, through page 106, which is the first part of the book. And what's the next chapter go to, Rev? I'm flipping through my book. This is probably boring co- podcast material for people. They're flipping, they're flipping pages. What kind of podcast? So the next is chapter is called Citizen. Well, while Drew's looking up numbers, I'm going to read the chapter. That the next chapter is called Campaigning for a Jim Crow South. Okay. And uh, chapter four is Jim Crow storytelling, 
And that's the end of part one. So part part one was called Massive Support for Racial Segregation, 1920 to 1941. So that's the period and, we're getting on to is we're going to be getting into the early 40s by the end of the next podcast. And it looks like chapter five goes through page 138. And chapter five is the first chapter in part two, Massive Resistance to the Black Freedom Struggle. That's the 40s through the 70s. And chapter five is Partisan Betrayals, A Bad Woman, Weak White Men, and the End of Their Party. Uh, why don't we read through chapter five? Let's commit right. to get through. That's like a you know another like seventy pages. Let's do it because we did we did essentially three chapters. If you include the introduction before, we'll do another three. So we'll do chapter three, chapter four, chapter five in the next podcast. Okay, I'll put that in the notes. So if you're reading along, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts before the podcast. So uh, use the hashtag uh, White Privilege Podcast uh, tag Unruly Rev or myself, very white guy, and uh, let us know uh, what you're thinking about as you're reading it, what you'd like us to talk about, anything you struggled with or wanted to kind of highlight. Um, and we've, this is probably one of the longest episodes we've ever done, Rev. One of the most. Talking, listen, talking, let's talking, let's just talking. say to you, if, if you're good at this, if you've done these kinds of things before, if you've done read-alongs and you have any suggestions for us, please feel free to hit us up. This is the first time we've ever done this. Can you tell we're winging it? We're winging it. We just don't want to be performative. That's all. <laughs> Trying to make sure our annual report next year is not chock full of shit. <laughs> that, I'm kidding aside. That's not really what we're trying to do. But we want to we want to read the book. So read along. If you've got suggestions, let us know. <laughs> uh, so we usually end with some some other uh, advice, comments, and, and hashtags. Uh, and today is Friday, so I want to uh, highlight Black Fridays. Uh, if you haven't seen the hashtag Black Fridays, um, check it out. Uh, lots of uh, women, women of color in particular, black women, are wearing black uh, and then uh, using social media to describe uh, what they're doing, but the, the website to go to is Action Network, uh, and there's a Black Fridays We Do Not Consent, and I'll put that in the podcast notes, um, but they've got a, a sign up form and you can participate in a variety of different ways, but take a look at the hashtag Black Fridays, check out the uh, Action Network website and uh, get involved. This was, uh, I would say, a genesis from the Kavanaugh confirmation and I think a probably not well thought out social media blackout. So this is sort of the response to some of those things. But check it out. Uh, it's great. Uh, I mentioned my wife. If you don't know her, Leslie Mack, she's a terrific follow. I don't just say that because she's my wife. She's actually pretty awesome. And she's got a Patreon. You can support her that way. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else we wanted to shout out. Anything you wanted to, to highlight? No, well, the other person you can follow is, again, uh, Jay Marie Hill uh, with uh, Music Freedom Dreams. And that, I believe, is the, the Twitter handle as well. So make sure we'll, we're sending extra love to, to Jay Marie this week. Yeah. And we'll make sure that, uh, they're very excellent, uh, trans, uh, ally. I'm, I'm blowing it. What's the name of the, I don't say it wrong. The, the trans, trans ally toolkit, tool the toolkit yeah. with the ACLU. We'll make sure the link to the toolkit uh, is in the podcast notes as well, but we'll go ahead and, uh, sign it off as we always do with our salutation framed by one feminista Jones. Help don't hinder, support don't supplant, cooperate don't co-opt, solidarity not charity. One person can make a difference. Your passion is a superpower. 